Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. I'm dizzy from banging my head and jumping up and down, but that was the song London Falling by The Popo from their self-titled album The Popo, which is available on iTunes. Welcome to episode 28 of the Classic Horror Club podcast. Going to call this meeting to order. Richard, how are you? I am good. You know, it seems like we just did this. We, We were doing some recording, it seems like less than... Three weeks ago. There's a different time system that runs in the pre-production world versus the (laughs) post-production world. Reconciling those two sometimes is very confusing. And it may be four weeks, maybe, between times that by the time you get this posted, probably less than four between episodes. But yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We are back in the the what do we call this the chamberlain studios the southern studios the yes where i believe we get a better quality of recording because the room is smaller doesn't have the vaulted ceilings and open so we had all kinds of difficulties last time so thank you for being patient and hopefully you came back and we'll find better results with this episode and a fun episode it is too why? Are, I was gonna. I was gonna. Why? I was gonna throw you for. A I didn't know. Tell me. <laughs> I was gonna throw you for. What are we talking about this time? You always throw oh, that to me. Right. Right. Well, we are talking about our theme is Britain under siege, and we are talking about giant monster movies that the monsters attack London. We give Tokyo a break this time. Although there's some connections, interesting connections, I think that we'll there point are. out as we talk about these movies. We watched The Giant Behemoth from 1959, Conga, and Gorgo, both from 1961. Yeah, I didn't do very good on that, did I? When you, you spun it on me like that, it, it I, caught I, me unprepared. I, I know, I caught you unprepared. I threw you for a curve. A heads up, unless something gets pulled out of my rear during the course of recording, no Star Trek connections this week. But fear not, I've got more than one Doctor Who connection. And I hope I can state with 100% certainty that nothing's going to get pulled out of your rear, at least not while I'm here, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, no Star Trek references, uh, but got Doctor Who, you know, well, British England. Doctor Who. It's yeah. England. Made it kind of easier on me, and, and uh, maybe I'm missing a Star Trek connection, but I, 
I don't think that I am. So sorry for those of you who anxiously wait with bated breath for my Star Trek connections. I'm going to disappoint you this go around. Well, before we get to that, let's uh, welcome some of our new members. These are people who have joined our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. And we have four people this time. And I thought, I didn't, I didn't run this by you, but later on when we do voicemail and feedback, I thought maybe we could read some of the feedback we've gotten on Facebook, maybe to get some more voices, not literal voices, but just other comments into the show. So Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So the, the first person who, and I'll do his feedback now, is Joseph Mello. Welcome. He told us that he loved the Lon Chaney Jr. podcast. We appreciate that. I'm glad you loved it. Well, I believe that the Karloff and Lugosi episodes are on the feed. Not all of our old episodes are, and maybe that's a good time right now to remind people that if you go looking on iTunes under Classic Horrors Club, our feed, since we did the relaunch, there are some episodes that you can't find, but those should still be on the the other feed, correct? Yes, the Downright Creepy Downright podcast Creepy. Network. Yeah, so if you if you're looking for if we make a reference to an episode and and we haven't reposted any old episodes for a while, but they're still out there, look at the Downright Creepy feed and you might have to go back a ways, but those old episodes are still out there. I don't know if there's a particular one you're having a hard time finding, we've referenced and you want us to re-upload that. We can do that. It's been a while since we've done any old archived episodes and re remastered them in glorious high <laughs> definition. Welcome. Also, Justin Giallo. And I have, that name is so familiar to me. I think he may have been on Monster Kid Radio or Derek may have mentioned him. I've seen him online something. Oh yeah, I, I've been friends with him on Facebook oh, okay. for, for quite a while. He lived up, I believe, in the Northwest. Now he lives now in the Austin area, he works at the Alamo Draft House. So, and he's done movie screenings and stuff. His his wife, she's beautiful, and she looks like Morticia Adams. They they and they're raising their kid right. Let me tell you, he is a monster kid through and through. And I believe his name is Dario. Yeah, welcome, Justin, to the to the Classic Horrors Club. Is Giallo his real last name? I, you know, if I so it's awesome. <laughs> if it is, that's amazing. I'm I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. I, Justin, if you're out there, let us know. I would assume probably not, but if it is, my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. Nicholas Hatcher, he joined also, and Michael Scott. Michael, I have to know, do you get office jokes all the time? I was, I was thinking, it's like, where's Dwight? Dwight didn't, you know, he hasn't joined the club. That's hurtful. Yeah. No, welcome. Welcome. Yes, welcome, everyone. Thank you very much. And anyone, it's... Doesn't cost a thing, but a moment of your time to visit and uh, join the club. Uh, you do have to request, and we'll approve you unless the background check and you know uh, social security number, ID trace, are not bad things. Then we won't add you. But exactly, and if you want to pay us annual dues, we certainly won't say no. You know, so we'll leave that entirely up to you. Whoever you, no, I'm kidding. We have some old business. We do this every month, and it's to correct the mistakes we've made in the past. I feel like this is a hearty, substantial bit of old business, and I really did some research to try to come to some of these answers. First of all, we talked about the actor who played Mark in Mad Made Monster. He was the love interest, a gentleman named Frank Cassidy. We knew he was in Psycho, but we didn't know what role he played. He, in Psycho, plays Tom Cassidy. 
He is the wealthy man with the 18-year-old daughter who purchased this, purchases the Harris Street property as a wedding gift for his daughter. Wow, I'm drawing a blank. I that think character. that was early in the in the movie when uh, Janet Lee's at the bank and there's business going on and she okay, first contemplates. Okay. I was trying to figure out where that fit in the rest of the story. Yeah. It's, it had to be early on. Yep. It's been a long time since I've seen Psycho. Yep. We talked about uh, Man Made Monster. The script had been around a while. We weren't sure why it was not originally produced and I couldn't find a really concrete reason other than at the time it came, it was first presented, they thought it was too similar to The Invisible Ray. So they didn't want to make it and release it at the same time. So it was that makes sh- sense. shelved for four years. There was new management and uh, they brought it out and made it. This is another one of those we both knew it. You knew it. And, I, and when I say we're clearing this up, it's not that you know you contradicted it. It's just we kind of weren't sure. And so I want to follow up and, you know, and and shore up our, our theories there. We wondered if the Zodiac Killer was ever caught. And no, he was not. As you said, his identity remains unknown to this day. We <laughs> talked about the actress Mary Mitchell, who played Anne in Spider-Baby, and noted that she was also in the movie Looney Tunes Back in Action. She was uncredited in the role of a script supervisor, and we wondered how in the world that came to be. So this is interesting, and you might need a pen and paper to kind of trace this. But her son, Tyler Patton, was the assistant property master for Looney Tunes Back in Action. So I assume there was uh, some connection there, and he was probably responsible for getting her that role. Now, the father of Tyler, Scott Patton, was in Dementia 13, which Mary Mitchell was in, and which the director of Spider Baby, Jack Hill, co-wrote. Wow! So it's a uh, seven degrees of Kevin ins- Bacon. Kevin yes, thing, kind yeah. of incestuous relationship amongst <laughs> all of them, professional-wise, and I'm sure it's who knew who and all of that. But they had a long history going back in various combinations, and I. Going to wager a guess that's how she ended up in Looney Tunes back in action. She's probably visiting her son on the set one day and they needed somebody in the background. So I'm just kind of curious what a property master does. Assistant uh, property, assistant property, ma- property yes. master. So I guess managing, assists the property master. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it has to do with props or something. You know, getting the props from the Universal where, or wherever. Now, did Universal make that? No, whoever the studio was, maybe getting props or something. I don't. Interesting. Yeah. And the next one is equally as interesting, sort of, but makes a little more, it's a little more easy to follow. We noticed that this same Jack Hill that we just spoke of was an uncredited director for The Terror, and we wondered why. So I, I looked a little more into the making of The Terror. Roger Corman shot most of the movie in four days. You know, he used Jack Nicholson, Boris Karloff at the tail end of another movie, got their shots done in and out of there like he often was. Well, the rest of the movie was actually filmed over nine months, and it used different second unit directors, including Francis Ford Coppola, Jack Hill, and even Jack Nicholson. But the scene that Jack Hill directed was a scene that involved quicksand. Um, Originally, it was planned for the death death of Gustav, but they decided instead to have Gustav attacked by a falcon. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie. But anyway, the shot involving quicksand, Jack Hill directed in his own backyard. That is his uncredited contribution to 
the terror. I vaguely remember that story now, shooting in the backyard. That that seems to ring a bell with me. And uh, I actually, I've loved that movie. It is so nonsensical, and I love the fact that a good print of that exists now. Because for so many years, all we had was kind of a murky public domain. And somehow, in this crazy world we live in, it now exists in a a glorious print, really, compared to what we had on Blu-ray, of all things. And then yet, uh, other things still haven't even gotten released on home video, like I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Go figure. I don't know. It's kind of, I do remember that story. So that's it for Old Business. We also include feedback in Old Business since it's talking about our previous shows. And we have a couple voicemails this week. These people were kind enough to take time out of their day and give us a call at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. First up is someone we haven't heard from in a while. It's good to hear from Mr. Steve Sullivan. Hey, Rich. Hey, Jeff. This is Steve Sullivan calling to check in. I've got a long rant on Dark Shadows at some point, but this won't work on a three-minute routine, even if you edit it all together. So just a bunch of things. Talked about Unknown Island a long while ago. It's a really cool dino flick with guys in suits, dinos. It's a lot of fun. I think it's public domain. It's it's worth seeing. It's shot in, like, two-strip Technicolor, or not really, but something that looks like two-strip Technicolor. Worth seeing. Mentioned the Flesh Eaters. The Flesh Eaters is really good. I'd highly recommend that. It was out and cheap on DVD at one point, but it's probably out of print and expensive on DVD at this point. So, oops. Uh, I love the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe movie. My wife loves it, too. It's really a lot of fun. It's one of Dolph Lundgren's best roles. I know that's damning with faint praise, but, but it really is cool. It's got a good production design, and it's got a, it's got a really nice payoff at the end of it. And it's more than a little of Back to the Future mixed in with fantasy. So it's, it's kind of really cool. I think you might like it. Certainly worth checking out. You were wondering if there was a CD of the John Williams Dracula. There is. I have it. It's very short. It's like 30 minutes of stuff. And I know they've released a longer one, and I think you probably have that. I need to get it. The music for John Williams for Dracula is just frickin' brilliant. So you were talking about Invasion of the Dinosaurs and how that got destroyed with Doctor Who. It's actually a much sadder story than you guys were relating. Here's what happened. So they were going through their archives and destroying all the Hardnell and all the... the uh, Trout and Doctor Who's because, in theory, they didn't have the rights to them or something like that, or they just wanted to recycle the materials. And so the invasion is an earlier Doctor Who serial. I think it's Troughton, but I could be wrong. It could be Hardnell. And so they saw Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but it just said Invasion because it was episode one. So they destroyed that along with all the older episodes, too. Fortunately, they rediscovered it in black and white, and I think they've even gotten it in color now. But it's just a, a terrible story about destroying art for, like, goofy, mistaken reasons, however they did it. Glad you had nice things to say about Mantan Moreland. I love that guy. He's just awesome, very funny, would have been a third stooge after Curly had left if times had been different. That's the rumor, anyway. They wanted him, and, of course, the people that the other stooges were working with were like, no, you can't have a black guy in Three Stooges. Anyway, Moreland is funny. He brought about my inventing on my own of the Costello test, which is if you can drop uh, Lou Costello into the role and it works, then maybe it's not as racist as you think. So that's easier for me to to say than uh, for people that aren't white, probably. But, you know, 
what am I going to do? I am who I am. So I invented the Costello test just to kind of try to figure out whether something was really racist or whether maybe it wasn't. And as a white guy, I can't really say for sure, but I think it's not a bad test. And you guys were mentioning some, something similar. If you put Jerry Lewis in the thing, would it be funny? Well, probably not as funny as Mantan Moreland because he was much funnier than Jerry Lewis. Anyway, I think it's, it's worth noting that not all black guys doing comedy in old movies are necessarily racist. Though, step and fetch it, man. Those are hard. <laughs> Those are really hard to watch. Anyhow, you guys asked about Frank Fontaine, the drunk in the Jerry Lewis movie, and I'm not sure if you're asking me or the other Steve, but I looked up the clip and I'm like, oh yeah, I know that drunk guy. That's that's Frank Fontaine. I didn't remember his name, but yeah, he played that character. Played that character a lot. Played it on TV, Jack Benny Show, a whole bunch of those. Stuff. Weirdly, when I looked him up, I also found out he's a crooner. Go figure. So he played that kind of crazy drunk guy, and then a crooner. In a way, he was kind of like a pre-Benny Hill, Benny Hill character, except drunk, I guess. Anyway, that's about it for now. Love your show. Continue to do good work, and I will see you in person, I hope, at the next Memoverse event, if not sooner. Take care. Steve Sullivan signing off. Thank you, Steve. It's good to hear from you. It's been too long, so we appreciate you calling in. That was a lot of information packed into the voicemail. It refers to a lot of episodes. Sadly, some things I don't recall, but Richard apparently is sharper than me. He does remember. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice, and I know your life is really crazy, so it's good that you took the time. We appreciate that. Let us know you're still out there, and yes, I believe... We are definitely planning on being at the Queen of Snakes premiere in late April. I know that Carl and I will be there, and I believe Jeff is going to maybe try to work in Minnesota that week. So I think it's all going to work out. We missed the last premiere, but we're definitely going to be there for Queen of Snakes and maybe even a second premiere before the end of the year if Mr. Mim gets to work on that uh, second film that he's planning on for this year, I, which I I keep forgetting the name of that movie. I keep wanting to say, don't be afraid of the dark, yes. but I know that's not it. So That which lurks in the dark? Yes, I believe that's it. Yeah, I haven't heard too much about that. I'm intrigued. But I'm really interested about Queen of Snakes. Uh, over at the Mimiverse Audiocast, he is really kind of hyping this movie up. He's loving it and is really feeling positive about it. And I know that it runs, what did he say, 69 minutes? which I think is a really good running time for these films. And uh, I think that is going to keep the the, uh, the pace and everything really tighter. So as we record this, we're less than two months away from that. And I'm, I'm anxiously uh, looking forward to it. And hopefully by the end of April, we have some nicer weather. Because <laughs> if we headed north <laughs> right now in Minnesota, it'd be the Arctic. Because it's the Arctic here in Kansas City. So Did I tell you I'm going up there this week? For two I, days. I am so sorry for yeah. that. I mean, they've gotten, we've gotten slammed this year in Kansas City, but Minnesota's really gotten it bad. So hopefully, I'm requesting some spring like weather in uh, late April so we can see the Queen of Snakes premiere. I'm looking forward to it. Steve, we'll be seeing you there. Our next voicemail is from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, the Supermates Podcast, House of Franklinstein, and JLU Cast probably some others. He's a very prolific podcaster. We appreciate him taking time in, time to call and leave us a message. 
Hey, Jeff and Richard. It's Chris Franklin from Supermates on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I just wanted to call and let you know how much I really enjoyed your Lon Chaney episode. I'm a huge fan of Lon Chaney. I would actually put him just right below Karloff and honestly above Lugosi in the classic horror actors. I know that, that the sound you hear is Derek banning me from Monster Kid Radio. Uh, no, but seriously, I love Lon Chaney. I thought this was a great episode. I think the role of, of Dynamo Dan in Man-Made Monster, I think that set up the uh, sympathetic character that we get from Larry Talbot. And Larry Talbot is my favorite universal monster character, the Wolf Man. I think he's the he is the linchpin of the Universal Cinematic Universe. He's the original Nick Fury, you know, more or less. Love that character, and that's one reason I love Lon Chaney so much. You know, one thing you were talking about of Mice and Men, and I think it was another show, I think it might have been um, uh, The Bloody Pit, was talking about how um, if Lon Chaney had played that type of character now, uh, the character of Lenny, the simple-minded character, he probably would have got an Oscar nomination or maybe even won the Oscar because it seems like that's the ticket for actors. To, a surefire way to get an Oscar is to play some character uh, who's mentally challenged or something, and then, you know, you get the Oscar. But one thing about that character of Lenny is it's so lampooned in lots of the cartoons of the 40s and even into the 50s, the Looney Tunes cartoons. Anytime there's a big lumbering character you know, they're like, I will love him and pet him, and I will name him George. You know, I mean, it's that's Lon Chaney. I mean, that that's who they're aping. So he kind of had, you know, the influence from the monster movies and that. It's just too bad he couldn't parlay the Lenny thing into more roles outside of of the monster, the horror genre. I mean, I know he was in plenty of other stuff outside of horror, but it's uh, it's just a shame he didn't parlay that into uh, more of a career. I think he moved into the monster movies maybe too quickly for his own career's sake. I haven't seen the Alligator People. That's on my wish list to see. But that uh, character that he plays is referenced in a way in uh, Frank J. Delestrito's excellent book, A Werewolf Remembers, The Testament of Lawrence Stuart Talbot. Uh, Derek has talked about this on Monster Kid Radio. It's a fantastic book. And throughout the book, there's photos of different members of the Talbot family through the centuries, and they use photographs of Lon Chaney, Jr., Lon Chaney Sr. and Claude Rains from other movies to be those characters. Uh, so the Cajun character from the Alligator People is in is in the book. Um, I don't remember which Talbot he is, but he's supposed to be a Talbot in that book. Spider Baby, I uh, saw that, like I said, when I wrote into you guys about, I think, 10 years ago on TCM. Uh, it's a very strange movie, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed Lon Chaney's performance a lot in that movie. I think that is his last great uh, performance, or at least very, very good performance uh, before his health problems really settle in on him, as you guys said. Uh, I, I do agree that that movie is ahead of its time, especially if you consider when it was filmed versus when it was released. And I and I know the Herschel Gordon-Lewis stuff was out, like you said, but that stuff, no offense to it, it's got its place. But it looks cheap, but this doesn't. This looks like a legit film. Uh, and uh, it can hold its own with a film of the period and, and look, you know, fit in, even though it's completely bizarre and the subject matter is insane. I do agree that the Schlocker character is the only thing that kind of brings it down. He's just a cartoon. I mean, I know this is outlandish, but his acting is really stiff and, and pretty bad, and it's just kind of way too broad for the movie. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I, it it's, it's one of those movies that just, like, sticks in your head after you watch it, and it's like, what did I just watch? But uh, that that little monologue that Bruno gets when, when Chaney's tearing up, I mean, it, it really is – 
you know, it's another one of those things that probably would have got him at least some notice nowadays. I mean, even if the movie was you know, kind of frowned upon, he would have got some kind of praise out of it, uh, you know, and, and some talk of some kind of award buzz or something probably. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure, maybe not, but they tend to, especially with an aging actor and they have a kind of return to better material, they tend to kind of, hey, look what this guy's doing. So, but again, I really enjoyed the episode. I appreciate you guys shining the spotlight on Lon. I think sometimes his later work kind of puts him in the category of, uh, you know, not as well remembered and people figure he was slumming, but the guy worked the whole time. He he had a good career. I mean, an actor's whole thing is to work and he never was without work. So despite all of his health problems and his alcoholism, so you got to give the guy that. He kept working. So thanks again. Looking forward to next month's episode. See you later. Bye. Thank you again, Chris. We appreciate it. And I want to tell you congratulations. You and your wife, Cindy, just had the fifth anniversary of Supermates. I've talked about Supermates many times on the podcast. I love the husband and wife geek cast, as you call it. The, the chemistry between you two is great. And your, your fifth anniversary show was great. Uh, and really enjoyed it and just want to say congratulations. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for calling in. You know, I have listened to not as many episodes as Jeff because I'm perpetually behind on my podcast, but uh, I've listened to several episodes and, and I love what you do over there. It's it's The podcasts are different than some of the others that I'm listening to. It adds a little bit of variety. I used to have a lot of variety in the early days of podcasting. You know, I had my movie podcast, a Doctor Who podcast, a couple of them. There was a Star Trek podcast. And, I, you know, it's nice to keep that variety going. So it's nice to hear something that's a little bit different. I love classic horror movies, but it is nice to kind of get a change of pace. So keep up the good work and uh, keep letting us know what you think. Lon Chaney well, was a lot of fun. Uh, I think we'll be doing probably at some point the rest of this year. You know, I'm sure we'll do one or two more months where we highlight a particular star. We've got some ideas, maybe Lon Chaney Sr., possibly. Those are always fun when we do those kind of, you know, beginning, middle, and end films and, and take a look at someone's career. And I, we could certainly pull somebody out. We've talked about, like, Lionel Atwill, for example, someone who is certainly not to a level of a Karloff or Chaney. But, yeah, we're definitely going to, you know, maybe stir some things up, too. We've been kind of talking behind the scenes, and so... Keep up with uh, your feedback. Let us know suggestions if you've got any. And this goes to anybody. Let us know, you know, if there's a particular thing you want us to talk about. I know, uh, I think it was uh, Steve Turek mentioned several episodes back about the horror anthologies. I think him and someone else did. So I think, uh, you know, we're looking at maybe having an occasional episode here and there stirring the thing up. And, and we want to hear from you. So uh, keep it up. Thank you for calling in. A couple of the Facebook messages I mentioned I'd read. One was from our Facebook group member, Anthony Walker. And this was in comment to your words, Richard, last time about going to the silent film festival and, and seeing silent movies with accompaniment by a live band. And, and Anthony said, I think it was Rich who mentioned how having music written, especially for silent movies, makes a big difference in viewing. And it reminded me of a copy of Nosferatu that I bought once where they had music by typo negative to accompany the movie. I thought that would be a great fit, but it turns out that instead of new music, they just played a few previously recorded tracks in a loop that didn't really match the action on screen. It was very disappointing and didn't work out well at all. To which Steve Sullivan replied that there's an amazing James Bernard score for Nosferatu. 
I think that having the right score for a silent film is is absolutely imperative to enjoying it. I, I've seen Nosferatu with a horrible contemporary score, and I had to walk out. I think I've mentioned that before. Let me tell you, I, I watched Metropolis last Friday as we record this with the um, Alloy Orchestra, who was actually there two and a half hours. It was the restored version. They played without a break, and it was bombastic. It was loud, but it was good. It was not a traditional score, yet it really was amazing. Now, Carla didn't appreciate it because it was too loud for her. She really likes a more traditional score. If you've got the the, the blue the Blu-ray of Metropolis actually has a more traditional score. We're going to rewatch that so she can see that version of it. I think some movies you can have multiple scores and get a different experience each time. I really enjoyed what the Alloy Orchestra had to do, but I think, you know, it just really proved that you've got to have music that at least kind of goes with what you're seeing on the screen to thoroughly enjoy it. And and I've, you know, just recently watched an old Stan Laurel short and it, you, it, they literally had a record playing and it, you can hear the crackles every once in a while. And then it, it gets to the end of the record and there's like a pause. And it's like they're flipping it over to side <laughs> B and then the music starts up again. It was like, it was so bizarre. Uh, and that's, it was a cheap company. It was a, you know, a public domain disc. So you get what you pay for. And I think I paid a buck for it. If you can take the time and effort to get the good copy of silent films, it's worth the money. You'll enjoy the the experience a lot better. Are you familiar with the James Bernard score for Nosferatu? You know, I, sadly, I, I'm not, and I don't have a good version of Nosferatu. I, the version I have is the alpha video version, which is a horrible print. I think the soundtrack is okay, but the print is horrible. But I keep seeing that on the big screen. I keep saying I want to get you know get that on Blu-ray. They've got you know a wonderful print out there. But I you know I've seen it now in the last five years. I think three times on the big screen. Locally, they keep playing it around Halloween. So I'm like, well, as long as they keep playing it, you know, the restored version with live music. I, I it kind of like my purchase list. Yeah, <laughs> it gets bumped to the bottom. You know, and it's the same way with Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde and and. Uh, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. I need better prints of those, better copies, but I keep seeing them live. In fact, I, you know, Phantom of the Opera has actually just been announced. That's going to be at the Kaufman Center here in Kansas City with live music from uh, that Dorothy Papadakis, the, the organist. So mark For Halloween? October 29th, two nights before. So, yeah, mark your calendar for that. I know you didn't get to see it last year. No, you did go I with did, this. Yeah. You did, Hunchback. yeah. Yeah, and I think that was an amazing experience. So Phantom of the Opera with live music, yeah, I'm so there. That's the best way to do it. But even then, if you get a you know a, a Blu-ray or a DVD with good music, pay the extra money to get it from a company like Flickr Alley or the Criterion Collection, um, Kino, Lorber, I know they put out silent movies. Pay the extra few bucks, you'll be, you'll be happy you did. That's it for old business then. If you have nothing else, Richard, let's take a quick break and come back to dive into our movies. Sounds good.
gentlemen, we are witnessing a biological chain reaction. A geometrical progression of deadly menace. Look there. Two points off the port bow. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. Not since King Kong has a screen exploded with such mighty fury and spectacle. A year after his plane crashes in the jungle, Dr. Charles Decker returns to England with a chimpanzee named Conga, and a theory that he has discovered an evolutionary link between plant and animal life. With a serum that causes Conga to grow in size, Decker hypnotizes the creature and uses it to remove anyone who stands in the way of him receiving recognition and glory for his experiments. Richard, last time when we did the Lon Chaney Jr. episode, I was, my angle towards discussing the movies was from a scientific, and we kind of talked about the science of each movie. This time, I actually found a religious angle to all three of these movies, and I'm going to Try to sprinkle those in as we talk about these movies. It's pretty obvious in The Giant Behemoth. Well, I think from the very beginning of the movie, yeah. yeah, You've got biblical references. That made me curious, and I wanted to look up exactly the reference to that in the Bible, and it's from Job chapter 40, verse 15 through 24. My biblical scholar friends tell me, What it's doing is demonstrating the futility of questioning God, who alone has created these beings and who alone can capture them. And I think, to me, that goes with this creature. And they're they're sort of making... And it's not not such a light-handed reference. I mean, there's a funeral then later where they actually read the verse. And I just think they're saying this is one of God's creatures. Man cannot stop it. Only God can stop it. And that kind of is an underlying theme of the movie. And I just want to read, not the whole thing, but just a few uh, verses about how they describe the behemoth, because it does go with the monster, and I just think that that's kind of interesting. So, Behold now behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. So definitely big monster, big dinosaur from the bottom of the sea. 
Praise biblical, Jesus. <laughs> I was going to say, with some biblical references, I've, we've elevated the podcast yes, to the next yes. level. Or offended somebody. Probably. So uh, if we offended you, we're sorry. Mm, yes. But, uh, I mean, that day, yeah, that's right from the get-go, at the start of the film. It's, it's uh, they throw out that. You know, to me, it, it I kind of like when they do things like that, because it just kind of like... This is a giant monster movie, but we're going to class up the place a little bit. You know, I think it's kind of fun when they do that. For me, it it, it worked in this one, and uh, I had forgotten about that. It's been a while since I had seen the giant behemoth. I honestly can't remember. I thought that I had seen this one in the last couple of years, but then as I started watching it, I'm like, I'm not convinced that I've seen this one for a while. I'm not sure I ever have. I don't. I don't remember. Oh, how did you like it? I enjoyed it. I I really did. You know. Um, Comparing these three films, they're all very different. And this one being black and white, even though it's the setting is the UK, it felt very much like a 1950s giant monster flick, you know. And and certainly, uh, there's good reason for it. I mean, it, I had a lot of feelings of almost deja vu at times with Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which makes sense because one of the two directors, uh, Eugene. Lori or Lurie, I've heard it pronounced both ways. He did Beast from the 20,000 Fathoms, uh, along with Gorgo a few years later. We'll talk about that. Also, Colossus of New York, which is a fun one that I haven't seen that one in a long time. That'd be a fun one to do on this show. He knew how to do a big, giant, you know, creature movie. But I think it was interesting that when they were making this movie, they didn't necessarily set out originally to do a giant monster movie. It was really the focus was going to be on the the underwater blobs i guess is the best way to describe them and the monster was kind of thrown in if i remember correctly this the studio said no we need to do something a little bit you know more traditional i guess to kind of guarantee that people were going to go see the movie so let's throw in a giant dinosaur like creature and that's where i think really the the underwater blobs are are almost secondary and certainly the marketing now, it's all about the, the, the giant dinosaur. But if you watch the movies, originally it, it felt like, you know, almost 50-50 until the, the kind of the end when the monster starts on his rampage a little bit. And it becomes really more about the monster than the, uh, the underwater blobs. What I like about this movie, though, is that it's more than just the monster. It's this whole radiation thing. And there are references to Hiroshima, tests in the Pacific, radiation. It's actually dying because of the radiation in its body. But they talk about how they can't destroy it because if they blast it to bits, those radioactive bits will fly through London and irradiate people. And that that's more dangerous, really, than uh, the destruction he causes just walking through London. So I like that there's a little more than, oh, just a giant monster rampaging through the city. I didn't quite catch this, and I went back to try to find out, do you remember there's a reason he's going through London to the Thames River, and it, it's, he's going there to die, but I don't remember the scientific explanation for why. Yeah, I think it was it, it was casually referenced, it, it, but yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank as, as to what the reasoning was as well. I think the fact that we're even dealing with like the radiation and element and stuff and then the atomic bomb testing, I mean, again... That's what sets this movie apart from the other two that we watched because this one very much puts it in that 1950s post-atomic era um, by throwing in that you know atomic bomb reference and the radiation and stuff like that, which really does not come into play in the other two movies we're covering this week. 
And unfortunately, there are more things I don't like about this movie. It's very talky. And it's about 40 minutes into the movie before the creature even does anything. And then we don't even see him yet till later than that, about 10 minutes later. It's a lot about the investigation. It's a lot of the science and the things they find on the beach. And it's similar to Conga in that we don't really see the giant monster except for a small portion of the movie. So I, I didn't like that about it. I also didn't like that in that first time we see him do something, it's him blowing his radioactive breath on Toby the dog. Yeah. Yeah. That that, that was sad. Yeah. Because I used to have a golden name, Toby. Yeah, I, I I like the elements of the of of the scientific investigation of it. That was kind of fun, but you know, when you're dealing with a shorter running time, it, it seemed like it did slow down the pace a little bit. It, it was fun, but I think it was too much. I think they could have scaled back a little bit and kind of gotten to the action a little bit more. Sometimes you wish some of these movies had more scientific explanation. It's a, it's a tough balance when you're working with a 80-minute time limit, typically 80 to 90 minutes. So I don't know what the running time was on this, but I think it was close to 80 minutes. It did kind of drag things down a little bit. It would, it would have been helpful if they would have sped it up a little. So what did you think of the special effects, the stop motion, his rampage? How, how did you like that? I think it worked out really well. Um, you know, Willis O'Brien was involved in the special effects, uncredited for his work, which is criminal. Some of the credits have varied depending on what prints you saw, but I know he was uncredited originally for it. Of course, if you know that name but don't know who we're talking about, we're talking King Kong, The Lost World, the original silent version, Mighty Joe Young, Willis O'Brien. I think, really, his work is what gave birth to Ray Harryhausen's work. I mean, Harryhausen has said you know, that that King Kong was an inspiration for him. And this was one of his last films. It wasn't his very last movie, but he it was one of his last. He died in 1962. I think that while he was alive, he wasn't necessarily celebrated as much as he is, I think, now. Of course, we know the name. You know, having just seen The Lost World a couple of times in the last year, I mean, that's an amazing movie. His work in that film is fantastic. I haven't seen King Kong for a few years, or Mighty Joe Young, but I mean, those are classic. Everyone knows those works. So this one, I think, is one of his lesser efforts. But I think it was good. I think it was good. You know, you can't help but compare to what would what would have Ray Harryhausen done with this. And I think, personally, I think that maybe it was a notch below Harryhausen, but not much. I, I think uh, when looking at some of the Harryhausen films in the 50s, I think, you know, it was on par. It was definitely on par with what Harryhausen was doing at that particular point with giant monsters in the 50s. I thought it was pretty good. It was pretty consistent. A lot of times with stop motion, you see maybe a close-up that's obviously a puppet or something like that. There wasn't too much of that, if any, in this. It was pretty consistent. I liked the... The Rampage was pretty brutal. Yeah. With, with, you know, people dying and getting... and, And especially that radioactive breath. You know, a lot of people got turned to ash in front of our eyes. And that may that may be Eugene Laurie a little bit because we definitely had that in Gorgo too. There there was a lot of buildings literally falling down on people which we didn't always get. You don't see that and I know we'll talk more about it when we get to Gorgo, but you don't see that in a lot of the Godzilla films. You see Godzilla tearing up the paper mache villages, but you don't see a lot of times the villagers 
getting trampled necessarily uh, as as graphically as I think as you get like in Gorgo and to a lesser degree here. So that may that may be the influence of the director or one of the directors for this film because Eugene Laurie shared directing uh, credits along with Douglas Hickox. This was his first film. Didn't do a lot of genre work, but he did do Theater of Blood with Vincent Price. And he was certainly, I think, learning his craft from someone who had already done uh, some monster films and was, you know, still had Gorgo waiting down the pike. So I think, I'm not sure how they worked in tandem together in the directing. I'd read a few varying degrees is that, you know, they necessarily didn't work together. They worked out different elements of it. I've read some instances where Douglas Hickox was kind of learning from Eugene Lurie, so I'm not sure which is true. It's kind of hard to tell. I don't know. Did you find anything on that? No, I didn't specifically, but is this the one that was filmed in London, but the Rampages were filmed in Hollywood? Yes, and so maybe that's where... Maybe they made the distinction. Yeah, maybe Douglas Hickox was working in the L.A. portion of it, and Eugene Laurie was working the Great Britain portion of it. I don't know. Yeah. If anyone out there knows, maybe Steve Sullivan. He knows a lot of the big, giant monster films. Uh, maybe Steve Turek or anyone else out there. Let us know, because I'm curious. Whenever you see dual directors getting credit, you know, either there was a parting of the ways or there was some logistical issue where they needed uh, one director needed assistance from another. So that may have been the case here. What you got on the cast? Not a big name cast, really. No, but there was a couple names that people might remember. I mean, Gene Evans played Steve Carnes. Um, he was in Donovan's Brain that we did not hmm. too long ago. Did lots of TV work. I recognized him, uh, you know, by his appearance, not by his name. He did a lot of like westerns, so he popped up on Gunsmoke and I think Bonanza and, and stuff. So familiar if you watched a lot of TV in the '60s, for example. Now, Andre Morel is a name that I knew. Yeah. Of course, he plays Professor James Bigford. Did a lot of stuff. He did Ben-Hur, Bridge on the River Kwai. He was Dr. Watson to Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes in The Hound of the Baskervilles in 1959. He also worked with Cushing again in uh, Cash on Demand, which is an amazing movie. He was also in She and Vengeance of She, Plague of the Zombies, Mummy Shroud. So certainly earned his... uh, his horror cred in the Hammer House. You've got the character of John, played by John Turner, did lots of TV work, so not much from him. The character of Jean was played by Lee Madison. She did some television work, married in 1960, and, and left uh, the acting business shortly thereafter. I'm assuming to be a full-time uh, wife and mother, it seemed like, or maybe something outside of the acting, uh, maybe outside of Hollywood. So and that's really all I had on the cast. I mean, yeah, again couple of names, but not a lot of uh, overly familiar names or faces in this one. Uh, I did have some interesting things on like the, the writing of this. This was a story by Robert Abel and Alan Adler. Now, Robert Abel only had four credits to his name, and this was his last movie, and really nothing other genre-related. Alan Adler only had two credits to his name, the other being Forbidden Planet. Now, I, I'm curious as to how someone can do Forbidden Planet and then not have anything until a few years later, The Giant Behemoth, and then never do anything else. I couldn't find anything on Alan Adler. So I, and I, it's not doesn't appear to be a pseudonym for somebody else, so I don't know. I'm, that's one of those 
weird things where like there's got to be a story to it and somebody out there knows it. I just I couldn't find the answer. Now the screenplay was by director Eugene Lurie and Daniel James. Daniel James did this under the name of Daniel Hyatt. That's because Daniel James was blacklisted during the McCarthy hearings. And he actually has four credits to his name, one of the others being the movie Gorgo. So he obviously uh, appeared to be a friend of Eugene Lurie's, and Eugene Lurie got him a job um, using that uh, the name of Daniel Hyatt. And I think looking at that, we have kind of a similar circumstance too. Was it Gorgo? Maybe it was Conga. Yeah, Conga was kind of the same thing. There was a lot of pseudonyms used when we get to that. And again, it's at that time period of the McCarthy hearings. There was a lot of good people who got blacklisted and had to continue to work by using uh, various other names through their connections and friends who believed that they were innocent. A lot of good people, a lot of innocent people were hurt by that. And uh, a lot of writers in particular. So that's, you do have those where they had to use alternate names to make a living. And this is the case with Daniel James, Daniel Hyatt. That's what I've got as far as the as far as the cast and, and the crew. Eugene Laurie is kind of interesting. He was born in Kharkov in the Russian Empire, which is now the Ukraine. He studied painting and stage design in Paris He worked on ballets before turning to film. He was an art director for Charlie Chaplin's Limelight in 1952 before uh, really starting to heavily concentrate on films and directing in particular. He died of heart failure at age 89 in 1991. So not a name that necessarily is really well known, but kind of an interesting history as to where he came from and, and some of the work that he did prior to becoming a film director. Did you um, recognize any of the uh, the sounds that you heard in this film? Well, I did not until I read about them afterwards. <laughs> uh, is This is the one where they used screams from King Kong? Yeah, they used some screams and some sound effects from King Kong, including Fay Ray screams. So hmm. she, when you hear some of the people screaming, Fay Ray is in that mix somewhere. I found that kind of interesting, you know, and I don't know if that was probably coincidence that Willis O'Brien was, you know, the, the uh, special effects guy in King Kong. But maybe not. I don't know. Maybe... Yeah, how does that work? Because it, they were different studios, and is it like public domain sounds, or how would they have had access to it them? It could but... be. If, if a particular production studio did, not necessarily a Hollywood studio, but maybe did the sound effects, because I know that there's, there's sound effects studios out there mm-hmm. You know, for example, like the bionic sound effect from the Six Miller Man, that seems to pop up in a lot of different things. Uh, A lot of the sound effects from Star Trek, for example, some of which were borrowed before Star Trek. I hear them in older movies. Some of the bridge background sounds are, are present in other movies prior to Star Trek and that were not owned by, uh, by Paramount. Sometimes I don't know if it's just, out and out stealing of, of sound effects or if it's maybe working with the same you know sound guys and they're just recreating sounds much like James Horner has a particular sound if you listen to the Wrath of Khan soundtrack and you listen to Aliens four years later there's a lot of the same musical elements so I, that's probably the same with people who work on sound effects that 
they've got maybe their their favorite go-tos maybe that's why certain things are present in multiple films and in this case you know out and out just pulling from previous film i'm not sure on the rights of that i'm sure now there's probably a bit more concern about it maybe not as much back then the only other thing i had on on the giant behemoth you know is its availability um it is available on Blu-ray from the Warner Archive Collection. I didn't even realize they were doing Blu-rays now. Hmm. Uh, and apparently they are putting a few extras on it, which is different from, I think, the the traditional Warner Archive DVDs where they don't put anything on there. And you get it for less than $20. I did hear there's some commentary on it that is very questionable. I don't know the two guys that do the commentary, but apparently... They don't like the movie and decide to try to pull off a mystery science theater vibe. And I'm like, that's not what commentary is for. I'm not a big fan of mystery science theater anyway. I I, I can watch it when I'm in the mood. But as we've said, I don't like these movies being made fun of all the time. I can do like Cinema Go-Go because a lot of the films they pick are cheesier. And things like movies like The Thing with Two Heads sometimes deserve to be laughed at but when you're watching something like the giant behemoth i'm like you know yeah it may be cheesy in certain spots but i don't want to sit and listen to a couple of guys sit there and make fun of it for for an hour and a half to me that's not my idea of fun but i know other people enjoy that so i guess a a buyer beware if you're buying it and you listen to the commentary just know it's not traditional commentary they're they're poking fun at the movie well that explains the comment steve sullivan made in the facebook group page he said the movie was fun but something of a mixed bag and then he said terrible commentary and i wasn't going to mention that because i thought oh somebody probably worked really hard on that and i don't want to disparage anyone that does a commentary but he probably did not mean literally bad but what you're explaining i would agree that's not a commentary i would like to no listen to. no and, and i i honestly didn't recognize either of the two names so they're not you know somebody that uh that we know or that we that you see their names you know pop up periodically so i don't know if they've got any other commentary out there i won't mention their names yeah it seems like steve's not alone in that there's a lot of people out there that say that's the, kind of the worst part of the blu-ray but it's available for less than twenty dollars so my copy was, I believe, a burned off of uh, Turner Classic Movies from a few years ago. So uh, I found it to be a good print. I, th- you know, so if I didn't feel the need to upgrade. I enjoyed it. I, as I've said before, I love watching some of those that I recorded ten years ago and have Robert Osborne, who is now no longer with us, giving his few anecdotes about the movie, and and I kind of liked rediscovering that. You know, 10 years later, when I plug a movie in, I was like, oh, I recorded that, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And and seeing, especially now seeing someone who's no longer with us. You know, the Blu-ray, I think, is a good way to go. It's readily available, which is uh, a nice thing about all three of these movies we're talking about is they're all three readily available. Sometimes we, we throw some curves at you and throw some movies that you can't find somewhere else. These three are relatively easy to find. And I believe The Giant Behemoth is the most expensive of the lot. The other two films are even cheaper yet. I just thought it was okay. I mean, it's average. It's pro- I don't want to say it's a lesser film than some of the others, but I, I know if I'm comparing it to some of the others, like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, that this is a, is a lesser between the two. It's it's not going to hold up to a Harryhausen film and you know, or some of the other big monster movies, big giant dinosaur films or whatever of the 50s. It's not the worst of the lot either, so I think that... Uh, it fits somewhere right in the middle. I think it's uh, 
a fun Saturday afternoon, rainy day, matinee kind of film. I think you'll enjoy it. As you said, there's better out there, but there's a worse way to spend uh, an hour and a half of your time. So I think I think it's worth certainly worth watching if you haven't seen it. Very good. Let's take a break, listen to the trailer for the next movie, and we will come back to talk about Conga. There's a huge monster gorilla that's constantly growing to outlandish proportions loose in the streets. Conga, born of a scientist's dreams, bred on a madman's nightmares, brought out of the jungle and turned into a wild beast beyond man's understanding. I am your master and you must obey me. Now you no longer have any fear. Starring Michael Goff as Dr. Decker, who stole the jungle secrets of sorcery to distill Satan's black magic in his own laboratory. Margot Johns as the girl who becomes an accessory to murder, with Claire Gordon as the young student. Trapped with a madman in a nightmare world of fear, jealousy and passion. Let me go! Thunder, you know I loved you! jungle scene of color, excitement, and spectacle is thrillingly mixed with the close mystery of strange insectivorous and carnivorous plants. See them. Fear them. And feel the anger and the anguish of Jess Conrad in a picture charged with powerful emotion. You Conger, the most fantastic beast of all time. Not since King Kong has a screen exploded with such mighty fury and spectacle. In the new process of spectamation and Eastman color, he grows in size and terror before your eyes. In a film that fills the screen with giant entertainment. Not since King Kong has a screen exploded with such mighty fury and spectacle. A year after his plane crashes in the jungle, Dr. Charles Decker returns to England with a chimpanzee named Conga, and a theory that he has discovered an evolutionary link between plant and animal life. With a serum that causes Conga to grow in size, Decker hypnotizes the creature and uses it to remove anyone who stands in the way of him receiving recognition and glory for his experiments. We are back with Conga, and Richard, I would argue that this movie, I know technically it belongs with this trio of movies, but really, to me, it's not a giant monster movie. It's a mad scientist movie. I mean, we do get a giant creature that goes on a rampage of sorts by the end of the movie but i would agree this the conga it's the most interesting of the three films it, it's definitely I, I had forgotten how crazy this movie is let's just be honest this movie is is definitely crazy there's a reason you know midnight movies put this out and originally at one point now i think now i think the the copy you find is is from mgm and it hasn't been given a new release since 2005. Thankfully, that DVD 
is still available for less than $10. But when you think of midnight movies, that, that line of, of DVDs, there was a lot of crazy films in that. Some good stuff. We got some good Vincent Price movies out of that, but we got a, we got things like The Thing with Two Heads again. So Conga, yeah, it's it. I, I forgot how crazy it is. I remember seeing Conga when I was a kid, probably on Mystery Theater on Sunday afternoon. I don't think it was late at night and it devastated me at the end when the giant gorilla shrunk back down to the chimpanzee i literally cried i was so sad i will say that 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 vision of the chimpanzee laying crumpled up on the ground that was kind of harsh that was that was very very harsh there's a lot of harsh things in this movie there there are there there definitely are um so those of you following along at home Carla watched the first movie. She did not watch this one at all. And she's not quite a fan yet of the giant Godzilla-like creatures. So she's warming up to that. There's no way she's going to warm up to Conga. Any type of animal violence is not her thing. And if so if, you know, here's, here's the thing. If you're not into animal violence, there's some of that in this movie. And uh, there's some sad stuff. So, yeah, go, go in that knowing that you might need to to uh, avoid a scene or two to make it through this film. I think I had talked to you earlier that day and we both said we were going to be watching Conga and I started it. I immediately texted you and said, do not let Carla watch. (laughs) I mean, this, you know, Dr. Decker, uh, Michael Guff, Gauff, Guff, Michael Goh. I I, I don't know. I've heard a variety of versions of it. Let's just call him Alfred. Yes. He comes back with this serum that will make animal life grow and he spills a little bit and the cat laps it up pulls out a pistol and shoots it we can't have a giant cat walking the streets <laughs> right then i knew oh please for the love of god don't let carla see that yeah i when i saw that scene i was like oh my gosh i was like and you know yeah we got some of the hammer blood to go along with it but still that was a harsh act he was not a likable guy there really was no redeeming factors for him at all. I mean, even when he's trying to be nice to uh, to Margaret, even then, just like, yeah, you're full of it because he's he's being nice to her. It's to serve a purpose. Exactly. He that, was never genuine. No, because he his his loins were hot for Sandra. Not a nice guy. Michael Goff or Gao or however that's pronounced. You know, he played Alfred in the Batman movies, and so you think of that kindly image, but he had a lot of other films where he generally is playing a less than than reputable guy. I mean, he was in Horrors of the Black Museum, Phantom of the Opera, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The Skull, and here it goes, the first of the Doctor Who references. He was in, uh, he was the Celestial Toymaker, which is one of the classic villains from the first Doctor, William Hartnell's era, and three of the four episodes no longer exist. So there's not very much footage of him. But he plays kind of this... Uh, kind of think of him as a, as kind of Q from Star Trek The Next Generation. He's in this other dimension. And he was actually supposed to reprise that character in the 1980s. And then the season that he was supposed to be in, opposite the sixth Doctor, Colin Baker, got postponed. Uh, the show went on hiatus... And when it came back, they decided to go a different route and never did do the sequel, hmm. uh, which I think was a... was There is a book um, you can read. It. It's called The Nightmare Fair, 
but it was never made uh, for whatever reasons, and I think that was a big uh, mistake. I think having him back would have saved because the show, when it came back, really began to suffer in the ratings. Having a, a major character like that come back would have been big. He was also in another Doctor Who story in the 80s called Ark of Infinity, so a couple of Doctor Who references there. He's generally, though, he's not a nice guy in some of these British films, but he was Alfred. Everyone thinks of nice Alfred. Nah, not so nice when he's Dr. Charles Decker. My religious reference in this is blessedly short since I went overboard on the first movie, but it's just that he really has a God complex. And oh yeah, definitely. That, that's the, the, you know, the just, if you can squeeze that to make that a religious theme. I, mean, I think so. I mean, every mad scientist has that to a degree. He had it to, to, you know, kind of the next degree. You know, some mad scientists, there's a redeeming quality. When Boris Karloff plays the mad scientist, you know, there's there's a part of him that you like. Even Lugosi, there's usually a part that he's not entirely evil. There's nothing about Dr. Decker that's even remotely pleasant. Even from the very first interview, after he's been absent and he comes back, he's immediately just kind of downgrading humanity and dismissive and rubs you the wrong way from the very first scene and it doesn't get any better. Yeah, and that's what sets him at odds with the dean of the school where he teaches, which I forget what that is. They show it later on. Yeah, that and that then becomes his first victim because he's going to put a stop to uh, the experiments because he's giving a bad image to the school with even the comments he made in that interview. I think this movie could have been very different. I think it could have been potentially a lot darker if they would have handled his experiments differently. As in, cute baby chimp grows up to be a giant gorilla, which we all know is a guy in a suit. To me, that automatically, any legitimacy the movie has is thrown out the window when the chimpanzee becomes a gorilla. Look, I get it. You've got access to a suit, a, a legendary ape suit. This was the uh, a legendary suit. This is the one that was owned by George Barrow. So here's the background on the suit a little bit. We'll, we'll do a, a little sidestep. Producer Herman Cohen wanted to use well-known ape actor Steve Calvert, who he had worked with on Bride of the Gorilla and Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, but Calvert had retired and was no longer doing the, the gorilla routine. So Herman Cohen turned to another ape actor, George Barrows, but he only hired the costume. He only wanted the costume. He didn't want George Barrows to be in the costume. So he had an uh, actor by the name of Paul Stockman did the, uh, did the work in the costume, mostly because he was just a good fit for the costume. But... They treated the costume horribly. It got damaged on set, and it actually really uh, annoyed George Barrows when he gets the, the, the suit back that it actually had sustained damage. And I think you can almost see... I saw that there were several scenes where it looked like the, the suit was in pretty bad condition, whether or not that was the way it was when he initially turned it over. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like maybe... They they just didn't care about the suit, and it was damaged during the course of production. So I get it. You've got access to this suit. I don't know. I would think you'd have access to a baby gorilla somewhere. Maybe a chimpanzee was... I mean, I know, granted, chimpanzees are probably easier to train, 
but it just seemed to me like take the extra effort. Yeah, my note was the evolution of a chimpanzee is a gorilla question mark. <laughs> and I, I thought the suit was awful. I, I didn't know that history about it, but I, I didn't think it was good at all. And that's why I don't know if it was in bad condition and then just got worse. I just I noticed that there was like it looked like patches of hair that were maybe missing or it damaged. So I don't know. It, from what reading it, it makes it sound like that wasn't the condition that when he turned it over. But uh, it is interesting that they, they went that route. And I think it just, again, like I said, any legitimacy that this movie may have had is just kind of thrown out the window because that's, that isn't a huge part of the movie, but it, it's kind of what everything centers around. And when that big moment happens several times, it becomes comical. This is a mean movie. I mean, what happens normally with the giant... This is when Conga gets even bigger and Margaret has finally realized what a bad... Well, she... And this is also why it's mean. She knows that Decker is a bad guy, but she doesn't care. She'll support him and be bad with him as long as he'll marry her. So she's kind of not good either, but she does see the light finally and she, you know, gets Conga and hypnotizes him herself to do good. So what does Conga do? Picks her up and throws her in the fire. Yeah. Normally, the character who has seen the light or is a good person, especially a woman, would end up surviving. Maybe that's who he carries through the city. But no, he carries Decker himself through the city, which is kind of... I thought that was kind of interesting because usually the giant gorilla especially in king kong is carrying a woman yeah you know so that was interesting but that that's just mean and it's not that conga is a bad he only does what he does because he's hypnotized and he's been told to do that but yet there's sort of no reason for him to if throw well, so yeah, there, there's sympathy that, for him right there's that redeeming moment and then he kind of he throws it out the window so i'm like okay so who are we cheering for exactly. at this point i'm not cheering for the gorilla because he's just did a bad thing and I'm certainly not cheering for Margaret, even though she had this turnaround at the, you know, 11th hour. You know, she was just out for, you know, a wedding ring and, and security. And I wasn't a fan of Dr. Decker. That doesn't leave a whole lot of people. I wasn't a fan of Dean Foster, even though Dean Foster may have been partially right. He was a jerk, kind of the typical National Lampoon's version of a Dean, played by Austin Trevor. Austin Trevor was in uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Sabotage. He was in the Quartermass 2 television series, movie called The Day the Earth Caught Fire. I can't say that I recognized him, but I certainly know some of those other uh, titles. I've seen Sabotage many years ago. I think maybe, you know, the redeeming characters, if this film has any, are the characters of, of Bob and Sandra, who at least... I, but even then, I don't know. I mean... Bob seems kind of just oblivious for a while to what's going on. He's played by Jess Conrad, uh, who was in The Ugly Duckling, uh, an episode of Space 1999. Did lots of film and television work, not really much in the genre. Uh, kind of the same for uh, actress Claire Gordon, who played Sandra Banks. She did film and television work, nothing of note. Even Sandra, though, she's... Something about her is just... It's kind of like... I got the feeling like she kind of knew that she was the teacher's pet at the beginning and didn't really seem to care until then all of a sudden his intentions were he wants some physical attention and she didn't want that. But she was fine up to that point being the teacher's pet. I'm not saying that she asked for it, but I'm saying 
she wasn't very redeeming either in the very beginning. She, you know, she wasn't entirely innocent. That's what this movie lacked. I think it lacked uh, it lacked anyone that you could cheer for, really. And you couldn't even cheer for the monster, even at the end as he's getting killed. It's like, well, yeah, he did bad things while he was hypnotized, but he did bad things while he wasn't hypnotized. Nobody was nice in this movie. Yeah, I Bob is well. They're both Bob and Sandra. Both to me are just so forgettable. Bob, I guess he was kind of a whiner. Oh yeah, yeah. but yet he did finally he he turned and then finally goes in an all-out fist fight with Decker over Sandra. But uh, but then he but then he backs down immediately and he says, "Oh my gosh, don't let's not talk about this. I don't want to get I don't want to get expelled. Um, I'm sorry." I'm like, "No, you're in the right." Yeah, I, yeah, I, I did. You know, he he didn't get my sympathy. So, what about the rampage in this one? What what did you think about that? I, uh, I lackluster. Oh, definitely. So here is the thing. First of all, did you know in the dark of night in London, people like to congregate in the parking lot of the gas? Excuse me, the petrol station. <laughs> yes. And did you know that on one street it would be swarming with running people late at the dark of night, and then other streets are completely <laughs> empty. I, you know, they do things differently over in the yes, UK. I so I guess so. maybe that's, maybe that's uh, something we're, you know, maybe our, our friends across the pond can help uh, help us understand that logic. And I, I could, and I don't think, or I should say, I don't recall any destruction. This isn't a rampage where he's knocking buildings down, and well, he's not. He knocks down the oh, does he? the uh, the lab of sorts. I mean, as he oh, grows, well, he grows through the roof. Grows and he knocks and, a few yeah. things down and stuff. Beyond that, he doesn't really get too far from that. And so, it, it, my note was that he stands around a lot, and we see like lower leg as they walk by, badly superimposed on in front of a building. But I thought one shot was really cool, and that's toward the end where he's standing by Big Ben, and the camera is kind of down, looking up. And it's mostly just maybe his chest up and then Bing, Big Ben looming at the side and then there's shots firing up. I yeah. thought that was a cool shot. It actually reminded me a little bit of uh, the way Rick Baker looked in the 76 King Kong. Okay, yeah, um, I could the, see that. The face then. And then that was, I thought, a really good shot. That was the only one in the whole movie that I thought was good of Conga himself. Yeah, th- this one... Um... I don't know. You know, it had a lot of cred when you look at the the writing. When you look at everything else that they did, the writers, it's like, how did they do this? Why, you know, I mean, the story in the screenplay was by Aben Candle, who did... We've he, talked about him before. Yeah, because he, as Ralph Thornton, again, having to use a different name, I'm assuming because of the uh, McCarthy hearings, as Ralph Thornton, he wrote, I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Blood of Dracula. As Kenneth Langtree, he wrote, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. And he also wrote The Headless Ghost, Horrors of the Black Museum, Black Zoo, Trog, Berserk. So he's got some movies of of note, some that were, you know, better than others. And then you've got Herman Cohen, who uh, also worked with Candle on all of those films. He also used the name Kenneth Langtree as credit. So... Like, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein was credited to Kenneth Langtree, but it was actually co-written by Abel Kendall and Herman Cohen. And did you know that the shooting name for this was I Was a Teenage Gorilla? I Yes, I saw that, which I'm not quite sure how I didn't that... put two and two together on that, but it makes sense now if they did the other teenage movies. Well, and you had the, the teenage element that came into play 
when they go to the forest. When when Dr. Decker takes his class to the forest, you've got the teenagers all gathered, and they get caught in the rainstorm, and then they go into the cabin, and let's play a song. And then... Yeah, right. I, and I think that was probably the scene where Jess Conrad was supposed to sing a song, and it got cut, thankfully, because I'm, I'm not sure how that would have fit into the rest of the movie. That whole sequence there with the kids and, and the rock music didn't fit with the rest of the film. Whereas, like, I mean, I was a teenage Frankenstein or werewolf. It's a teen vibe. There was not a teen vibe right, in this movie right. at all, so it seemed very out of place. Thankfully, they, they decided not to incorporate that song. But even what they left in seemed odd. Yeah, I meant to comment on that. You were, And when they get on the bus, you know, they pull out their radio and they do the music, the right. groovy music too. This, though, it has, for its flaws, it seems to be a notch above I Was a Teenage Frankenstein or yeah, a Werewolf. I would agree just with that. In, in budget, maybe, but... Not much. Well, you, you know, Michael uh, Michael Goff is a is a good golf go. I wish we knew how to pronounce <laughs> that. He's a good actor, and so he elevates the movie, right? Because if you look at I Was a Teenage Werewolf or Frankenstein, there's not really an actor of his caliber in those movies. There's some good actors, but not of his caliber. So he elevates this movie by his presence. There's just not much to elevate, unfortunately. And it's so bizarre, like the legacy of Congo, and I don't know when we want to talk about it, but Congo and Gorgo both had fairly long-running comic book series. I always had in my mind, it, and Gorgo, I'll stand by, is a kid's movie. I always thought, oh, well, Congo's the equivalent. It's the kid's movie, and those they came out at the same time. They both had the comic books. This is not a kid's movie. No, it's not. And, and it, you know, it was part of a double feature with Master of the World, the 1961 Vincent Price film, which it's been a while since I've seen that, but I, that one I remember getting kind of a uh, kind of a Nemo vibe from that one a little bit, and that one certainly is more adventurous than this film. I, that's an odd pairing too for Conga and that film. I don't I don't see how those really work well together. So. Have you ever read any of the Conga comic books? I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know there was a Conga comic until I did this. Now, I knew the Gorgo because I've got one Gorgo in my collection. Did not know about Conga. And we were just at a comic show a few hours ago. And Conga was, there was actually, you know, I think like, what, 10 issues of Conga or something. They had a pretty good run. I didn't get any because it's just not calling my name. But uh, ran for 23 issues. Uh, Charlton Comics, which was... Kind of a, a fourth-string comic company in, in the 60s. They were certainly not a DC or Marvel, and I don't even think they were really up to, like, Dell or Gold Key. So really kind of fifth-tier comic company. And then they they ran into... I mean, you know, this isn't the comic podcast, but I know they ran into some financial difficulties, and then they started reprinting for a period of time some of their older comics from the 60s. And kind of changed up their logo. And I think at one point they were putting Modern Comics logo on their comics. And I remember all those that I have in, in my collection, I remember buying at Woolworths. And they had a big, like, you know, quarter bin. I paid 25 cents for, like, you know, the Blue Beetle number one and uh, the Peacemaker and E-Man and all these comics that no one remembers. Which, ironically, all those characters are now owned by... 
DC Comics. DC bought all of it. Captain Atom, which was popular in the 80s as part of the Justice League, that was an old Charlton Comics character. Conga, I don't know. I guess maybe DC has the rights to Conga now if they bought the Charlton comics or maybe the licensing for Conga was probably limited. Yeah, I've I have one, uh, Conga's Revenge I think is the comic and I don't remember the details, so I probably shouldn't mention it, but I do know the fact that he grows sm- smaller and larger is a key to the comic and you know, so when there's danger and he needs to do something Conga grows to take care of. It. I know that it's not the same Conga from the movie. It's a different Conga. They they don't resurrect Conga from the dead. So it's like son of Conga or you know, I don't know. <laughs> and I don't remember what triggers him to grow. I don't know if he has the self-awareness to do it himself or... Uh, anyway, I, I should look that up. The, also, Steve Ditko, Spider-Man co-creator, right? Yeah, He, yeah. he was the artist, oh, not yeah. on all the issues, but a lot of the Congo and Gorgo well, issues. Steve did Ditko didn't co-create Spider-Man, but he did the artwork, didn't oh, he? Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm a DC guy, so I don't know. <laughs> but a big famous artist, Steve Ditko... And they collected the issues that he did draw into a big hardcover book, The Monsters of Steve Ditko, or something like that. I've always thought about investing in that, but haven't yet. I know, because he also did issues of Gorgo, too. So I didn't hate Conga. This came out on DVD in 2005. I picked it up on DVD probably sometime shortly thereafter that, probably maybe 2006, 2007. And I watched it when I got it. I think I bought it at Best Buy. Did a blind buy because it was an old monster flick, so I bought it. And here we are 12 years later, and I'm just now revisiting it. And it'll probably be another 12 before I revisit it. I didn't hate it, but it's it's not a go-to for me. And this sounds weird, but I kind of like it. I like it better than Giant Behemoth for sure. It's just so twisted and dirty and I think I will revisit it sooner not because of the giant gorilla but because of all that other stuff that that really caught me off guard I had forgotten about that I will say of the three films it's my least favorite so this is another one of those rare moments Steve Turek are you listening (laughs) we're not in total agreement we don't agree all the time but I liked giant behemoth better not much better but a little bit better simply because it made a little bit more sense from a from a science standpoint. The chimpanzee to gorilla was a big issue for me that I just, every time that happened, it just like, you know. Well, it made no sense scientifically no. to me. The fact that there would be a genet- a evolutionary link between plant and animal, that to me makes no sense. Now, I can understand he finds a plant with properties that make humans grow, but to claim that's... I don't see any link between the two, and that was his big hypothesis. Yeah, I think his time in the jungle, I think he was smoking (laughs) something with the natives of the jungle, so... Mentioning that and talking about how bad he is, you know, he was with another person in the plane when it crashed, and they asked, well, what happened? And he could really care less. He's like, oh, I think he died. He didn't make it or something. And he he doesn't even care what happened to the other person on the plane. Yeah, that's right. That was his first scene. You get the gist right away. It's like, this is a nice guy. I wonder what the intentions were about like making this a British King Kong. Any thoughts on that? There was one line that I do really like. It's when he comes back with Conga and is treating it so well. And Margaret says that he's treating Conga like he has royal blood. And Decker says, he's first in a long line of kings. Well, that made me think 
King Kong. I think it was purely for marketing. I don't, I don't think there's really any connection between this and, and the classic King Kong. I think it was... They knew that, okay, we're going to do a movie about a giant gorilla. Let's try to see what we can kind of try to capitalize. I mean, and... and from a, I think it's pure marketing perspective. It, yeah, because, I mean, like we said, he, that's just one tiny part at the end of the movie where he grows big enough to go on a King Kong rampage. But, yeah, the, I mean, the tagline, you read it so dramatically earlier, but I'm going to repeat it. Not since King Kong has the screen exploded with, with such mighty fury and spectacle. That's all marketing. I None of that... I would not match this tag light up with that movie in any way, shape, or form. Mighty fury and spectacle! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anything else? No, I, I didn't hate it. So I hope it doesn't sound like I hated it. It just it's it's not a go to film for me. Like I said, I, it's not one I'll be revisiting anytime real soon. But uh, it's not the worst movie I've seen. I've got issues with it, but uh, I didn't I didn't you know it wasn't a horrible experience. Even if you believe the marketing and think this is a British King Kong, our next movie you could equally say is the British Godzilla. So let's take a break and come back and see if it fares any better than Conga did. Fire! No motion picture of our time has ever unleashed sharp spectacle of such scope and realism as up from the depths of prehistoric mystery rages, Virgo. The headlines of the world blaze the fabulous story of this monster from another age, catapulted from some vast sub-ocean cavern by unprecedented volcanic action. And the headlines scream the story of the reckless skin divers who captured the monster and put it on exhibition. Stop! Pull out! Drop the net! What do you think you're doing? Hey, take it easy. I can't let him go back to see where he belongs. Why? Maybe to save your silly skins for you. Hurry, hurry, hurry to see Gorgo. But the headlines do not record the story of a little boy who had a curious sympathy and understanding for the fantastic creature. What strange secret does he know that scientists only suspect? You trying to say there may be a fully grown one of these things around somewhere? How big would a full grown one be? An approximate guess. The infant. The adult. That would make it nearly 200 feet tall. Wreaking terrible vengeance against the civilization that has captured its offspring. Towering over the cities of the world as millions flee its awesome terror. Prepare! Prepare Prepare! Nothing can stop it. Defying the force of the army. The might of the Navy. Ready to open fire, sir. File them. Even the fury of the jets. In a crashing crescendo of sights never before beheld by human eyes and adventures never before experienced by any man or woman. Not since King Kong has a screen exploded with such mighty fury and spectacle. 
A year after his plane crashes in the jungle, Dr. Charles Decker returns to England with a chimpanzee named Conga, and a theory that he has discovered an evolutionary link between plant and animal life. With a serum that causes Conga to grow in size, Decker hypnotizes the creature and uses it to remove anyone who stands in the way of him receiving recognition and glory for his experiments. Our last two films, Conga and Gorgo, were both released in March of 1961, what, a week apart? And uh, I thought instead of, you know, what we've done in the past, what was happening in the United States in 1961, why don't we take a look and see what was happening across the pond over in the UK in 1961? How many pence was a gallon of gas? You know, I couldn't find that, (laughs) actually. I looked for that. Uh, I always throw the gas reference out, and that you know, I was, I'm disappointing you. I couldn't find it, but I do have that Queen Elizabeth II was the ruling monarch, um, as she has been for decades upon decades. But she was only in her tenth year of her reign, so that tells you she she became queen in 1952. Wow. So she has been queen for a very very long time. Um, Harold Macmillan was the prime minister. And uh, nobody talks about Harold these days. He was in his fifth year. The Avengers television series debuted on ITV, which is not the BBC. And the Avengers series was vastly different when it started off. Um, It starred Ian Hendry and uh, Patrick McNee. Patrick McNee was the secondary character. and starred uh, two men. And uh, eventually uh, Ian Hendry left and was replaced by Honor Blackman. Patrick McNee's character of Steed kind of took over as the lead. And then uh, Honor Blackman's character eventually was replaced by, of course, Diana Rigg and her role of, of Mrs. Emma Peel. And that's when the show really started to take over and got national uh, appeal and became syndicated across the world. But uh, 1961, a very different version of The Avengers debuted. Uh, I've seen those early versions, a couple of those episodes. They're kind of a chore to get through. The hmm. they, uh, Emma Peel ones are a lot more entertaining. The world of sports. Angela Mortimer beat Christine Truman at Wimbledon. Ian Fleming's James Bond novel Thunderball was first published in 1961, and it would be turned into a film, I believe, four years later. Boy George was born on June 14th. So was uh, Matthew Waterhouse. And who is Matthew Waterhouse, you ask? Somebody that was in Doctor Who? Oh, there you go. You get the prize. He played Adric on Doctor Who. He was born on December 19th. He's probably one of the most irritating companions. He would have been, I think, like 20 when he... Yeah, he would have been 19, actually, when he debuted on the show. He was very annoying. He lasted less than two seasons before they killed him off. Who was the doctor that he was companion to? He uh, joined in the last season, the seventh and final season of the fourth doctor, Tom Baker, and then survived on into the fifth doctor, Peter Davison. I didn't know that a companion has ever been male. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah, Oh, okay. The the very first uh, companions with the first doctor, one of which was a male teacher. Generally, they don't go with males, but there have been some big ones over the years. The second doctor had Jamie McCrimmon, who was in all but one of his episodes. Yeah, Adric, not as appealing as the others. He was annoying. And uh, to make sure that he never could ever come back, they killed him off um, in the next to last episode of his second season. Now, from the uh, world of music, 
We've got The Beatles performed at the Legendary Cavern Club for the first time on March 21st. Top songs in the UK included Contiki by The Shadows, Runaway by Del Shannon, and Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis Presley. Popular British films included Cash on Demand with Peter Cushing, Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed, and The Innocents, which is an excellent haunted house. Not really a haunted house, but a haunted ghost story, I guess is what I'm looking for. Isn't that a version of Turn of the Screw? Uh, is it? I think so. So that's what was happening in the UK in 1961. One thing to know about Gorgo is I believe they wanted to make something epic in scale, and that is demonstrated even in its very first the font of the letters in Gorgo when they come up in the opening credits are those big block letters that just gives it an epic feel. And I feel like that's what they were trying to give this movie. I'm not terribly sure how they succeeded in doing that. They needed a little more money, I think. <laughs> yes. they, they were dealing with a shoestring budget, and uh, if they'd have been given a little bit more more money to work with, I think they they could have come up with something that would have potentially rivaled Gojira. Uh, there, I've said it. I think I think it could have been interesting, not as good as Gojira, because Gojira is such a classic. But I think it would have been on par with maybe some of the other Godzilla films from that time period. But they just didn't have the money. Well, where do you think they could have invested the money to make it imp- well, to improve it? For one thing, I think the uh, you know there's been a lot of different versions of the of the Godzilla costume over the years, and some have been goofier looking than others. I think Gorgo his his mouth, the way his mouth just kind of it was like a puppet. It was just like his his bottom jaw just you know or her bottom jaw just you know flip 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 flip. Right. Um, I think they could have done something different with the with the facial structure and how that worked because you don't see that from Godzilla. What did you think of the wings or the fins? I I thought those were different. I don't know, though. I mean, they they kind of came off looking a little goofy. But if you took those off, then you're really getting something that looked a lot like Godzilla. And then you just beg to to the question, it's like, well, why didn't you just make this a Godzilla film and have Godzilla pop up in the UK instead of uh, Tokyo all the time, which, you know, would have been pretty bold for that time period. But... I don't know. I think I think you know there was there was some of the special effects scenes. I I think they actually took really good care of making it look like the buildings were really heavy because they used undercranking to slow down the effect of of these buildings toppling. You don't get that in a lot of the early Toho films. I mean, it looks like Godzilla's tearing apart some paper mache buildings. They they looked a lot more believable in this film. But then, you you know, so you had some really graphic scenes where you're seeing people literally getting buried alive under rubble. But then the next sequence, you see what's obviously some superimposed rubble yes. popping up on the screen. That was inconsistent because they didn't, it wasn't every single shot that looked that way. And it looked like, okay, we've got, we got $20 to work with. We're going to spend $18 on this shot and then we'll throw in a $2 shot here. If they would have been more more of the of the the good special effects if that would have been across the board i think that would have helped the film look a little bit better and i think honestly i think the cast i think if they would have gotten 
a few more people that were more recognizable, uh, some some you know more well known names. I think that would have elevated the film. I mean, what about you know having Peter Cushing play one of the scientists? I think that would have uh, would have elevated it quite a bit. I don't know throw in Oliver Reed as one of the as one of the uh, you know the. I don't know what you want to call the him. The harbor master on the island well, would yeah, have been great for that. Exactly. I think I think if you would have had a few big names, more money to spend on the budget, and at least worked with the facial structure of Gorgo, I think the film would be much more highly looked at than it is today. The movie gets recognized. It get it it's it certainly is a recognizable film and it gets a lot of love and rightfully so. I think it could could be certainly get substantially more if they would have had more money to work with. The face of Gorgo, uh, the mouth you talk about, I don't mind the little fins or the wings. What I mind is their movement. It's almost like they're almost on a timer where it goes around and then they flap a couple times. Yeah, flap, 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 and flap. I didn't like that, but I don't, I don't mind them being a distinguishing characteristic, and I think they are. If you think of Gorgo or see a picture of him, it's those wings that, that distinguish him. I didn't like his hands had really big hands, you know what that means, but they didn't move. He just sort of batted at things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think they could have done some more there. You're exactly right. The destruction was excellent, and I don't know that it was just the undercranking. It looked like there was heft to the buildings he was knocking down. and But then it would be followed. When that rubble was falling, it was transparent because it was, like, superimposed. So... Um, I think when he tears apart the bridge, for example, I mean, it looks like yes. it's a bridge. I mean, that's where undercranking played a part in it. But yeah, I think they spent more money on the on the miniatures that they that than Toho would typically use in a lot of their productions. And here's something I want to throw at you. I think when we see movies that have recognizable landmarks that are destroyed, we like them more. I mean, think about Independence Day. We love to see the the alien explode the White House. Well, here you've got the London Tower Bridge. You've got Big Ben. It's It adds a little something extra to see things you really know exist that are famous landmarks get destroyed. That's true. Versus a generic city and building. Absolutely, right? yeah. So I think that added a little heft to it as well. I, and I think uh, interesting to look at the production of this film because... Uh, the original script didn't have any military action, which would have definitely made it very different from a Godzilla film. Because, I mean, I, and I hear the music in my head right now, the, the Godzilla Army March song that pops up, and here comes the little wind-up toys. He didn't, uh, director Eugene Laurie didn't want that. Um, and who can blame him because they used so much stock footage. That's something I hated in this movie. Well, and there's one particular scene where they, the... The missiles that they're shooting are bouncing off of Gorgo. That looked so bad. I was like, okay, no, no, no. That's that's not the way it would look. It shouldn't look that way. And I did hear that Eugene Laurie actually took the print, actually, and edited out all of the stock footage for his own use. And I don't know if, like, when he would show it to friends or something, he would show. But he had, I guess, a director's cut that he made of it that never got released as far as I know, but he didn't like the stock footage either. So, and it, and it yeah, it, it, it wasn't great stock footage either. And the movie's only an hour and 18 minutes, so I bet there was 18 minutes of stock footage in that. Yeah, so I would make the movie like an hour long then without yeah. it. So it was 
kind of a short film, yeah, all, all things considered. So what happened was the production studio, King Brothers Productions, they wanted guns. They wanted the military. They, and, you know, they were the ones funding the project. So they're like, nope, we want this, and he had to do it. Another thing was that he wanted, you know, the movie was supposed to be set in Japan originally, and then it was, uh, they thought about setting it in Paris, but eventually they they settled on uh, on England. You know, it would have been interesting to maybe have multiple locations, maybe have it start in Paris and have it work its way, you know, to England, I think. But again, that would have required more money, and they clearly weren't working with a lot of money. Well, and direction. you know why they couldn't use Paris? Or they could have, but why they didn't? According, and I, I think we're going to talk about this later, the Blu-ray has... A, a great one of those Ballyhoo extra oh, features yeah, yeah. documentary, the ninth wonder of the world, the making of Gorgo, about a thirty-minute documentary. They mentioned the Paris thing, but remember that Paris is a hundred miles inland. Yeah, so you're right. Yeah, to have <laughs> Gorgo go from you know a hundred miles, they thought really would have dragged out the movie. It would have, yeah, it would have sidetrack right now. Of the three movies, Gorgo is the is the best Blu-ray. It, it's the best you know home media. Uh, compare, uh, comparing the three sure. and for the cost I mean it's 12 or less than $12 you're getting uh, you get you get comic books that are kind of presented in a video format you're getting you know lobby cards you're getting trailers you're getting a documentary all that said though I don't think that the print was that great I am so glad you said that because I was going to ask you and one of the bonus features, I don't know if you saw it, was the restoration, and it's got yeah. a split screen with the before and after, and there is a incredible improvement. However, I still think it was not a good print. It was still washed out. There were the colors. Made, you know what? Vibrant. It made me think of Day of the Triffids. How we've never seen a good copy of Day of the Triffids, and and maybe that's why. Maybe there's not a good print. If this is the best they could do for Blu-ray. And they clearly did something in, involved in the restoration. It just may be that there's not a good print out there. But I, I thought that I'm like, I'm glad I didn't pay you know thirty bucks for this because it, to me it it looked DVD quality at best. I think sometimes even almost VHS quality. It was not a Blu-ray high definition, but it's the best copy of the film that's been out there. So I mean, it's worth getting this Blu-ray. But if you're if you're expecting a glorious high definition presentation, don't expect that. You're paying twelve bucks. There's a reason you're paying twelve bucks. But it's worth it for the extra features, I think. Oh, the, yeah, the documentary, like you said, Ballyhoo does amazing documentaries, uh, and and that's well worth you know. I thought this one was a little bit silly, though. I mean, I I was well, suspicious at the beginning because it had credits. It had like regular movie credits, like written by and. I mean, they took it, it made it seem approach. like it was a movie instead of a, a documentary. And then it wasn't really. It was like a regular documentary, but they had actors playing the voices of like the director. I did, I, I, so it was weird. I was, it was weird. Yeah, that was a little odd. I, I At first I was like, well, that's, I, I guess I got used to it over the course of 30 minutes, but... I agree. I it I would have appreciated just a more straightforward documentary. I they were trying to go with something different and I appreciate that, but I guess I'm more give me just a good black and white type of documentary. Just throw the information at me, throw some good visuals and I'm happy. I don't need the extra 
bells and whistles all the time. It had a good sense of humor about it. It talked about the King brothers and how, uh, what was the word they used, uh, that they were really criminals. <laughs> they were gangsters. And so where did they, where were they? Well, of course, Hollywood because of <laughs> yeah. that. And, but they were involved with Monogram Studios, but their movies were always just a little bit better than the typical Poverty Row Monogram movies. They never really explained you know, why they called them criminals other than at the end when they were talking about uh, Gorgo being released, it was actually held on the shelf for two years because they hadn't paid the bills. I think maybe for, they said lab bills, so probably the developing process or something. Uh, so they couldn't, couldn't release the movie. They couldn't finish it because they owed money. Well, that'd be interesting if that's the case that this movie was made in 1959, right? If it sat on the shelf for two years... So... Well, and I don't know if that's correct. The the exact words they used, the release was held up for two years. So I don't know if they had finished the movie and it sat on the shelf or if they weren't able to finish it. It just said it. Or maybe production was held up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If the movie was made in 59, I mean, just two years earlier, then you'd have to really compare it to the giant behemoth being made in the same time period. And you're like, well, no, Giant Behemoth looked better than mm-hmm. Gorgo did. How many color films did you have in 59? Yeah, I, I'm almost willing to bet that maybe the initial start of production was held up. Uh, that would be an odd choice to make a color film in 1959. But that could also explain why they had a limited budget, because making a color film is more expensive. They wouldn't have had as much money to go around. I, the scenes in which the baby Gorgo shows up well in, now so let's before i i'm sorry i don't want to interrupt you but let's talk about that we said in the synopsis there was a twist is it really a twist if you haven't seen gorgo before would you have known and, and i may be a spoiler alert but you know they take this creature back you think oh that's the creature well no that's just the well baby. if you've seen the trailers do they reveal it in there i mean you see the you see a bigger creature if you look at the poster you see a bigger creature and that was one thing. I hadn't seen this in a long time. I, I I forgot that the other one shows up, and I'm like, spoiler alert. I'm like, well, he seems awful small. I'm like, oh, God, is he going to grow like Tonga? <laughs> How is this going to play? Look at the cast list. Is Michael going this? Yes, yes. So, and then all of a sudden, you know, then it's like, oh, wait, you know, you know, Mumsy's out there. And, and yeah, so there's your spoiler. It's like a second... Gorgo, or I guess, or Gorgo's mama shows up, and she's not happy. Which was funny as I was watching this with, with with Carla. She was in the background, and she was like, "How come you know she lost track of her son for that long, and she just now shows up?" Because Gorgo's, you know, I don't know, baby Gorgo. He's gone for a while before Mama Gorgo shows up, and she goes on a rampage. Nonetheless, uh, that's where the destruction comes into play. Baby Gorgo's too small. He does kill somebody. You know, and his tail does a little bit of damage, but he's he is small compared to Mama Gorgo, who is Godzilla size. So what were you going to say about Baby before I so rudely interrupted you? Well, Baby Gorgo, that whole sequence, I mean, obviously Gorgo is drugged, but it, it looked like a... a um, it looked like a float to me, sitting on the, the, you know, the, the trailer bed or whatever. Apparently they shot that scene... Uh, on a Sunday morning. They did that intentionally so that there was no one on the streets so they wouldn't have to work around crowds. And the uh, television announcer makes reference that people were told to stay indoors. 
So that explains why there's nobody really on the streets as as the baby Gorgo is being wheeled around. I thought that was kind of funny. And it was interesting, too. They said in the documentary, it went really fast. Check me on this. But because it was covered with a tarp, they only had to build a life-size head and tail. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Which is why it, it looked... It didn't look very believable. Not a, not a, it, it looked different, just enough different that you're like, uh, and even I think even I think the proportion seemed a little bit off too. Yeah. yeah. And I think there was everything was so hard. There, it it didn't look. It did. Yeah, it didn't fleshy look, or no, real. it didn't look exactly. It did not look fleshy. Yeah. So let's talk about the cast. I guess as as it, we're you know we talked about that. There's really not. Anybody, you know, this film could have been enhanced by having a few bigger names. So you've got Bill Travers playing Joe Ryan, one of the two treasure hunters, I guess, at the beginning of the film. He just did a lot of film and television work, but he did Born Free, which I thought was kind of interesting. And they even referenced that briefly in the uh, documentary. Uh, William Sylvester played his partner, Sam Slade. Now, he's actually got some screen cred in the horror genre. He did Devil Doll which I saw that movie quite a few years ago on AMC, I believe. Devils of Darkness, which I I don't think I've ever seen that one. I think Steve Sullivan referenced that not too long ago on Facebook. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, a wonderful made-for-television film, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I love that movie. As cheesy as it is, it's creepy. And he did lots of television work. You've got Vincent Winter playing the young boy, Sean. And as an actor, he didn't do much, but I thought this was interesting. He went on to become assistant director on Superman the movie. And he was a production manager on Superman 2 and the James Bond movie, For Your Eyes Only. Wow. So uh, interesting. He starts one and and ends up going a different path, which arguably he was more successful uh, as an adult. Christopher Rhodes plays the character of Mick Carton. Um, he was in an episode of Colonel March of Scotland Yard with Boris Karloff. He was in the Quartermass Experiment television series, as well as a couple of big movies, Guns of the Navarone and El Cid. Joseph O'Connor played Professor Hendricks. He was in The Gorgon, which uh, I believe we'll be covering in a few months here on the show. Spoiler alert for the future. The Dark Crystal and lots of TV work. And then uh, the other professor, Professor uh, Flaherty, played by Bruce Seaton. He was also in an episode of Colonel March of Scotland Yard with Boris Karloff. He was also in an episode of New Adventures of Charlie Chan with J. Carol Nash. Also miscellaneous films and television work. The screenplay was by Robert Richards and Daniel James... But Robert Richards, like Daniel James, was on the blacklist in Hollywood, so he used the name John Loring. So it's John Loring and Daniel Hyatt is what they gave themselves the credit for in this film. And we've already talked about the director, Eugene Laurie. So again, you know, a lot of names you don't know, maybe people you've seen randomly in some of those other works. Just going over it, like I said, it, I think a name or two might have helped the movie. Uh, with a little bit of recognition. Uh, you throw a Peter Cushing name in there and Oliver Reed, and it would have, I think it would change this film's historical context just a little bit. I want to go back for a minute to the rampage. There were a couple other comments I wanted to make. I liked how Gorgo 
I guess the streets are more narrow in London because he doesn't go down the middle of the street. He just goes right down the center of these big rows of, of homes or apartments or buildings or flats, I guess you would say. I kind of like that, and especially with it looking so realistic, I, I liked how he just, or she, just, you know, plummeted forward through that. The crowd scenes were really good. They were, there were a lot of close-ups. The camera was there in the middle of the crowd. It was very claustrophobic. Oh, yeah. I thought it was, I thought that was extremely well done. I think probably the most believable. I, you know, it's been a while since I've seen all all of the Godzilla films, but I've seen them all multiple times. And we don't, you know, some movies are better than others, but I think this is probably one of the best crowd scenes of a monster attacking and probably very realistic. You know, people would be trampling each other. I, I had to kind of chuckle a little bit. The world is coming to an end, repent, repent guy. He didn't last very long before he got trampled. But why do people always go down into the subway? If there's a giant monster, I would not go down in the subway because wouldn't you think that well, it would collapse on you? Because that's exactly what happens. Yes. And, and, I, and he, you know, was it Joe Ryan? Yeah, I think it was him. He takes Sean and, and he sees what's going to happen and he like runs into the tunnel they seemingly get out really Yes, good. suddenly they're out. Suddenly they're out. It's like he's climbing up a ladder. I was like, oh, we're out. I'm like, well, that seemed to happen awful quick. But I did think it was interesting because they kept following us. Like, Mama Gorgo was smashing things. I mean, the sides of the subway were caving in and water was crashing in. Yeah, you're right. It's like, uh, if you've got a big beast who's trampling everything, I don't want to be buried alive. You know, I and why run directly in front of the monster? I, people go always do that. Side. I was like, take a right, you know, <laughs> and just go off on a side venture or, you know, you know, find a corner, hunker down and then run behind the monster. You never have that happen. What did you think of the newscaster that really wasn't in the movie at all until the, the rampage scene and then was in quite a bit? They showed us quite a few shots of him. He was kind of comical and, and, I, and he was one of the... Uh, apparently numerous cameos that this film had, which they talked about in the documentary. Uh, and a lot of people I didn't know, I didn't recognize, but people in England would have recognized some of these people, it, kind of everyday people who were popping up in small cameos that kind of added to the realism, I guess, if you lived in the UK. It, it didn't mean as much to to us, and certainly not now, decades later, because I didn't recognize the names of the people. But he he was funny. He well, was, he evoked two things for me. Number one, he reminded me a little of Raymond Burr's character in the American version of Godzilla. And second, he reminded me of, and forgive me, I do not know his name, the real-life person that was uh, reporting when the Hindenburg crashed. Oh, yeah. That's, the humanity. That's Yeah, I, it's not Edward R. Murrow's. I know I always think of him. It's not him, but yeah. Yeah, he, he kind of evoked that. I, I can I can see that now, yeah. You mentioned the man with the sign, Repent the End is Nigh. That was actually part of the uh, religious undertone or theme that I found in Gorgo. That was part of it. Part of it was earlier in the movie when Joe and Sam ask Sean, the kid, if he's ever seen Gorgo before. And the kid says, you don't have to see it to know that it's there. And that reminded me, of course, of God. You don't have to see God to know that he's there. And then, at the end, they say, we prayed for a miracle, maybe our prayers have been answered. So, definitely evoking some religion there with those comments. I could see that. I, I, I'll go with you on that. A bit of a stretch, maybe, but you know what? 
I like I like the theme. You're, you're following up on the science theme yes. from last month, so yes. I I could see that with these, and you do get that in in other big giant monster films. There seems to be that kind of that in, in mad scientist films, which you know Conga kind of fit into these, like you know. You, you think you're smarter than God kind of mentality and, and you know man wasn't meant to do this and and there are some things that you know man isn't meant to understand so it, yeah it is interesting though that this creature was not a product of man you know it wasn't from radioactive testing or bombs or which I liked that yes, I mean it, it was just nature yeah um, the volcano erupting and unleashing yeah I, I did appreciate that I really did. One of the things that caught my ear in the documentary was the the whole movie, and this goes back to what you're saying about the military and everything, it was supposed to be more of that, like, reverence for nature. And instead, you know, with the military and everything, and then they totally shifted the characters of of uh, Sam and Joe to be greedy, you know, yeah. the greed of... So that that was not originally intended... In that, the last thing I want to say about it is I found this so interesting in the end credits. You know, back then this is when there aren't a lot of end credits, and it, it, you know, oftentimes it's just one little screen. But the very bottom of the last screen of credits, it said "Cars provided by Avis Rent-A-Car System." (laughs) And I just, well, first thing I thought was, "Wow, Avis was here in 1961," and that just kind of got me curious about the whole rental car thing. And and then I just thought that was an odd thing to credit when you've got such limited real estate and, you know, Not, I, I'm sure it was a, you know, a quid pro quo or something. Yeah, there had I mean, to be money involved in that because yeah. that wasn't common in 61. Of course, now, you know, if if you bring a donut to the set for one person, Dunkin' Donuts is getting, a you know, its fair share in the credits. Back in 61, that didn't happen, so there had to have been a little bit of money. I wondered, too, when they were showing oh, what's the name of the of the uh, Piccadilly, Piccadilly Circus. Y- yeah, you know, Coca Cola was pretty prominent there for a while. I'm like, I guarantee you, Coke probably had to. You know, I did they use stock footage? Did you know? Maybe they might have used stock footage, in which case Coke got some free advertising. Or you know, was that one of those interesting product placements, which you did have back then? More, not as much as we do now, but uh, it was definitely very prominent. Apparently, Gene Simmons of Kiss is a lifelong fan of monster films, and his boots. Apparently, I don't know whether these are the ones he's still wearing or not, but at one time they were the face on the boot was modeled off the head of Gorgo. Wow. I think I had heard over the years that Gene Simmons was a fan of monster movies, and so he would have been for that time period when these you know old monster flicks would have been popping up on television all the time. So, and I know his their costumes have changed over the years, so I don't know that that's what they're doing on their end of the road tour. But uh, at least at one time, that apparently, according to the internet, where nothing is wrong, that is a little bit of trivia that I pulled out. Hmm. This isn't particularly trivia, but a, a couple of weeks ago, Derek on Monster Kid Radio did Daimajin. Oh, yeah. I've been wanting to see those for the longest time. Yeah, I think he, he did it with, is it Anthony Wendell who wrote the book, the How to Survive an Attack? Of I a, believe so, yes. Anyway, it made an interesting, or to them it was an interesting point that Gorgo is fairly well recognized uh, for whatever reason. I don't know if a lot of us saw it as a kid or what, but uh, they made kind of fun of the fact that Dijamine is not really recognized. No. Most people don't know it, and yet... More people recognize Gorgo. Well, Daimajin 
was one of those films I learned about probably a decade ago, and I managed to track down copies of that trilogy of films on uh, the less than reputable market. And those are the ones you gave me, I believe. Uh, probably, you know, and uh, I mean, now, of course, they had Mill Creek put out the trilogy. That's the first time they'd ever been uh, made available on uh, on home videos. So just in the last, I think, honestly, in the last five years, the movies are just now getting a bit more widely recognized than they were for a long time. And I think Gorgo, if I was reading another little trivia, I didn't write it down. It was maybe referenced in um, Knott's Landing, apparently. I, I don't know. And I could be off base with this, but apparently it had a weird reference in, in several episodes of Knott's Landing. Something to do with monster films or something was popping up. I watched Knott's Landing back in the day. I'm, I'm man enough to admit that. I don't remember Gorgo, but... I hadn't seen Gorgo at that point, so I might not have known who Gorgo was. I, I loved Gorgo. Um, of these three films, I think The Giant Behemoth and Gorgo are, I have to say, are almost tied for first because there's really big pros and cons for both of them. I definitely liked both of those films better than Conga. Again, didn't hate Conga, but uh, of these three, I would probably watch... The Giant Behemoth and Gorgo again, again, I, they're they're tied for me. I hate to do that. That's a cop-out. But I, I don't know that I can put, really thinking about it now, I'm not sure that I can put one over the other. I might give a slight edge to the Giant Behemoth because I think it looks a little better on film than Gorgo. Gorgo suffers from a slightly bad print still and some cheesier special effects that aren't present Giant Behemoth had a bigger budget, I feel, or just used their money maybe a little more wisely. So I'd probably give the edge to Giant Behemoth a little. But but other than that, I think they're almost tied. And I, I put Giant Behemoth on the bottom. Uh, not They're all very, very close to me. And I on any given day, I would like Gorgo or Conga better. I, I think I like Conga more than you. Uh, I think I would re-watch Conga and Gorgo just because they're so unusual in their own ways I'd, I'd watch them again and i have watched i've watched gorgo several times i'm not in any hurry to watch giant behemoth again but i have a question for you is that the last you have to say about gorgo that's that's the last of my okay trivia. so let's talk about all three movies and the theme of this episode was britain under siege for me all three of these movies they're fun they're entertaining but they're not great and my question is is britain is london are the british people really suited for giant monster movies? Well, I think compared to, you know, Japan, for example, poor Tokyo is just made to be trampled, all right? I mean, <laughs> Godzilla and Tokyo go hand in hand, and, and, you know, just the Japanese culture, I think, plays such a big part in those films a lot of times. You know, the U.S., we, we've got giant bugs all the time attacking and giant monsters. I would agree. I mean, there's not as many big monsters, you know, attacking the UK. When I think of of London, when I think of England, when I think of the UK, I think of gothic horror. I think of hammer horror, and they do that better than than we could do here or in Japan. I mean, that's that's their niche is is hammer horror and that type of gothic horror. 
not necessarily big giant monster movies. And I, this is not an original idea, I, I picked it up somewhere that there's the notion of the British being prim and proper and, you know, a giant monster coming on the shore and they're just sort of standing around talking about it, you know, jolly good. So there's that, there's also... Okay, you're making me think of Spaceballs now. <laughs> <laughs> the two apes, oh shit, there goes the planet. <laughs> Sorry. I also think, well, so I think... This is contradictory, but, you know, you think of Japan, Hiroshima, that, you know, that goes so well with giant monsters. There's the the thematic underlying tone, and it goes together so well. My contradiction is that you don't really have that in Britain, but yet you do because of World War II. And I just somehow think they've missed the opportunity to do it right. I mean, here's three movies, and the only mention is in Gorgo when I believe it's the news reporter says he's never seen anything like it, not even the Blitz. So there is that one brief mention, but and then so that made me think, oh, wow, there is that connection of World War II. I mean, London was bombed and it was destroyed. I don't know. I, maybe someone just didn't figure out the formula, but I don't think any of these movies really work completely. And I wonder if they needed to do some tweak to the formula or something to make them more. The other thing, it could just be regional. I mean, maybe people there love these movies. I, I don't know. But for me, not any of these worked completely like I thought they could have. Gargo probably worked the best, I think, of the three in regards to conveying that, you know, destruction and such simply because... You know, again, even though uh, poor special effects aside in some of the scenes, I think the the crowds and and the the claustrophobicness of that, I mean, I, that worked well for me. But I would agree. I mean, I I guess you can just suffice to say that giant monsters attacking the UK is just not their forte. They're um, much better suited again for that gothic horror and for some of the other types of, of horror films that they, they would generate, not necessarily just all gothic horror, but I think like the Quartermass films are just amazing pieces of science fiction, the way they handle the the outer space threats in those films better than, than some American films, I think. Probably just, I would just say, yeah, not, not necessarily their forte, not bad, but not what they're best at. Let's take one last break, and we'll come up, come back, and wrap up the show. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. 
Richard, I think we have a little relief to our wallets this month. There is not a lot coming out on home video. March 5th from Shout Factory is Deadly Mantis. Not really one I would purchase. I mean, it's fun to watch and I've seen it, but I don't need to own it. I've got it, but I'm, I don't think it's worth an upgrade for me. Yeah. March 12th from Arrow Video. Not strictly horror, but I love the name, so I want to mention it. Strip Nude for Your Killer. <laughs> I, I seem to always find one that just is a funny name. You, yeah, know? you, 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 do, you do find... You go to the deep dives on some of these. <laughs> well, Arrow Video, that's what we got is deep dives. Shout Factory also on March 19th does The Witches from 1966. That's a Hammer film. So they're continuing their release of Hammer movies on Blu-ray. I've never seen that. I don't know if it's strictly horror or not. I have it, but it's probably been 15 years since I've seen it. So. And I think that's the one that's also known as The Devil's Own with Joan Fontaine. Maybe. Maybe. March 26th, The Body Snatcher from 1945 is coming out from Shout. A... Another or a new, I'm not sure, version of Kingdom of the Spiders coming out from Code Red. Love the movie. And actually, if I didn't have it, I might. that might be the one I would think about getting. And then just for another deep dive from Arrow, Blood Hunger, the films of Jose Larraz. He is a Spanish director of exploitation films. The one I knew was Vampires from 1974. He also has done one called Whirlpool from 1970 and The Coming of Sin from 1970. Those back to our more thrillers than horror, but the, the vampires, and that's with a Y instead of an I, apparently has an underground cult type following. I'm not familiar with it. I have never heard of him before, so that's a new one on me. Yeah. Birthdays in the month of March. A few of them that are, are just relevant. March 1st. 1885, Lionel Atwell. Talked about him last time with Man Made Monster. I, I'd like to do him one month. Well, we had talked about yeah. doing him. And I'm not into necrophilia, so I don't want to do him at all. <laughs> He'd be bones by now. I'm not sure that's necrophilia. Or what is that? I don't know. Okay, anyway. March 2nd, 1886, Willis O'Brien. We just talked about him with the giant behemoth. March 11th, 1921, Sam Hall, a writer for Dark Shadows, credited for the technical part of bringing Barnabas Collins into the storyline. March 23rd, 1905, Joan Crawford. Another one we've got to do sometime is the Psycho Biddies. We keep talking yes. about that. I, I think maybe late summer. Yeah, I yes. think we've got the next several months lined up, so maybe mid to late summer. Anniversaries of movies that were released in March. Of course, the three we talked about today, coincidentally, all came out in March. Giant Behemoth, March 3rd of 59. Conga and Gorgo, both in 61, a week apart of each other. March 4th, 1975, Trilogy of Terror. I bring that up because March 4th is Monday as we are recording this, and that's what I'm going to do for the classic horror movie of the week on my blog is Trilogy of Terror. I just purchased that in the last month on Blu-ray, yep. so Me too. I might have to watch that. It's, that's uh, been a long time since I've seen it. Yeah. It was a big month for Universal in March over the years. In March of 43, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. March of 54, Creature from the Black Lagoon. March of 42, Ghost of Frankenstein. And Man-Made Monster, that was Universal, no? Yes, it oh, was. And yes. Man-Made Monster... March 28th of 41. It was also a pretty big month for Hammer, although some of their lesser films, well, 
I say that uh, not to offend anyone because these may be your favorites, but not the big ones you think of. March 15th of 67, Frankenstein Created Woman. March 15th of 61, Terror of the Tongs. And March 15th of 67, Mummy's Shroud. That's odd, those are all the 15th. I question my research on that. And then finally, Steve Sullivan for you. March 18th of 64, The Flesh Eaters. And it premiered in the entertainment capital of the world, Phoenix, Arizona. The TV Terror Guide, Sven The schedule has just been announced for the month, and I'm actually excited because I have not seen a lot of these, and so I am going to be watching Sven this month. Tonight, March 2nd, which will be probably two weeks ago Saturday when you all listen to this, <laughs> The Black Cat, not the good one. I don't know that this is bad, but the 1941 version. It's not bad. Okay. It's not bad, but it's it's definitely not the uh, Karloff Lugosi version, which is a classic. March 9th, It Came From Beneath the Sea from 1955. March 16th, The 4D Man from 1959. I don't have that, and it's been a long time since I've seen it. We might have to sit down and watch that one. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen it. March 23rd, Dr. Cyclops from 1940. And March 30th, House of Wax from 1953. So this is one of those five Saturday months. We get five great movies on Spinguli. I know they've played Dr. Cyclops before. Is House of Wax a premiere? I don't know. I don't I, think they've played that one. You know recently. I get confused with what's been on Spinguli yeah, before or not, yeah. so I won't even... I don't... Well, you know, because there was... Spinguli's been on for a long time, and, and it's kind of the pre... Me TV era, there were films that they haven't shown in recent years. I don't think they've shown House of Wax recently, but I could be wrong. Not much on TCM this month. The, the biggest day is today, so it'll be come and gone by the time this episode is published. But all day long, good science fiction movies for Ben Planet, Them, and, and some others. Uh, March 5th, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 31. That's my favorite version, I've said every time we've talked about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. March 15th, Young Frankenstein from 1974, and then March 23rd, Queen of Blood from 1966. And I point this out in particular because this is under the banner of TCM Presents. Hmm. Does that make it something special? Is it something they haven't shown before? Do they have an extra feature on it or something? Maybe that's... uh, I don't remember... Queen of Blood, I don't remember being on Turner Classic Movies recently, so might be part of a new series that they're doing or one that uh, I'm not familiar with. Hmm. Comet TV also has some movies that haven't been on in a while, although being Comet TV, these are of uh, a lesser quality. Invasion of the Star Creatures from 1962. I have not seen that, but the little picture they have for that is absolutely ridiculous. It's like men dressed in a foam star. Yeah, that's a Japanese film, uh, better known under the title Warning from Space, which is public domain you can find that. It pops up on a lot of those Mill Creek sets. Dr. Blood's Coffin from 1961, The House That Screamed from 1970, and It's Alive, no, not Mutant Babies, but a 1969 TV movie with Tommy Kirk. That's a bad one, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the one from 70, The House That Screamed? House That Screamed. That, is that a made-for-TV movie? To the internets! Don't think so. It's got a... a uh... La Residencia. So I believe that would indicate it might be a Spanish film. And if it is, a strict headmistress runs a secluded school for wayward girls. Sounds more like Euro horror than uh, 
TV movie. Lily Palmer. Okay, I was thinking of The House That Would Not Die ah. in 1970 with Barbara Stanwyck. So, House That Screamed, House That Wouldn't Die. Okay. That's all I got, Richard. What is up with you? Where can we find your wisdom on the <laughs> internet? Well, you know, I finally got around to recording some reviews for Dread Media that I have been talking about for a while. I did see Night of the Lepus in the last month. That's an interesting little flick. That'll be coming up the first week of March, so probably after this goes out, you can go back and check out, uh, I'm not sure what episode it is, 602 maybe, on uh, Dread Media, 601, 602. I've also uh, done a review for Web of the Spider, which is a uh, film that I was originally going to cover in the 31 Days of Halloween. It got bumped, so uh, Des gets it over at Dread Media. And a film I've talked about numerous times and still haven't seen. It's got to happen in March. The Limehouse Gollum. I, you know, it keeps getting bumped. Not because I don't want to see it, just because it seems like life keeps happening. But that's on, on target for watching it in March. And it'll be popping up probably March or April over at Dread Media. Beyond that, if you got a chance, if you, and if you didn't go back and look... Carla and I watched the entire Thin Man series last month, and we did get through all six films. We just wrapped up the last one yesterday as we're recording this on the first Saturday of the month, March 1st. The last review went up for Song of the Thin Man. So uh, go back to kccinephile.com and check out those reviews. I got a lot of positive feedback uh, and discussion from people um, on Facebook. Those films are beloved by a lot of people, especially the first four films. And I actually, we both really liked the the fifth film in the series. Uh, the sixth one was definitely the weakest, and, and there's a reason they didn't make a seventh, because it, Myrna Loy said it's her least favorite of the series, and she didn't really want to do any more, and, and I think it was a good place to stop. A lot of fun. Certainly got a review coming up over at the uh, monthly Mimiverse audio cast. Uh, Going to be talking about Frankenstein, the 1910 version talking about my experience at the Kansas Silent Film Festival. And the other film I saw, which was Metropolis, unfortunately you couldn't see, you know, life intervened on you, but um, we're going to get you to one. In fact, I don't think I've told you this. They are coming back in September, and they're calling it now the Kansas City Silent Film Festival for a day in September. I don't know what they're going to be playing, but... They, uh, they did that Buster Keaton W.C. Fields one last year, and now they're turning it into a full-fledged day-long film festival. So looking forward to that. But uh, I'm going to be writing a review in March on Metropolis and my experience with that in the Alloy Orchestra. So probably a little quieter in the month of March. Going to be doing some personal catch-up on the old uh, DVR films. I've got a lot building up in the DVR. I've got some ideas percolating. I'm thinking... I did a lot of Santo films in October. Carla and I really enjoy those, and I've got still some Santo films to make it through. So I'm seeing Santo Saturdays coming up in May. Uh, I've got enough to, to fill up every Saturday in May, so I see that happening a few months down the, down the road. So definitely March, I think, is going to be a little bit quieter. But uh, catch me at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com, and everything is at kccinephile.com. Very good. What about you? Well, I mentioned that I'm 
going to be writing about Trilogy of Terror. That's about as far ahead as I've planned at this point, but uh, doing pretty good at keeping up with a, a weekly classic horror movie of the week. The Vincent Price book that's been mentioned before, I think, is close to seeing the light of day. I know that the editor has it, and I've seen some of the art for it, so that's, of course, from that We Belong Dead group in England. Speaking of Britain Under Siege. I was disappointed that the last book didn't get nominated for a Rondo Award. I, I really feel compelled to write that in because those books, they, they're really, they're a little more expensive, but as I've said before, they are so full of information and so well done. And they include our very own Jeff Owens. So I know he doesn't like to toot his horn. I'll just interject right now and say congratulations on your Rondo Award nomination. Your website, classichorrors.club, was nominated again this year. And uh, I know you don't want to hype it up too much, but I'm going to say congratulations. I also know, I will just say right now, congratulations to our, our good friend Derek for Monster Kid Radio getting nominated for Best Multimedia Site. I hate the name of that category. It's a podcast, folks. He's nominated for that. And Christopher Mim and Guns of the Apocalypse got nominated for Best Indie Film, I think is the category. Uh, and I know that there's a few others of our, of our friends. I know Sam Irvin got nominated for his Elvira article. He's very proud of that. I'm probably missing several. I haven't really done a deep dive on the list yet. We'll probably talk more about that maybe next month once we both had a chance to really look at the list. I know I've gotten a couple suggestions already. As Derek always says, that's like a wish list. And there was a few things that popped up that really kind of caught my eye, including a DVD release that I somehow... I missed, but there's the Roger Corman science fiction films, those Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet set. There's a box set of those now, and mm. I'm kind of like, it looks really cheap, and I'm like, I might want all of those in one place. So, But in any case, congratulations for your Rondo nomination for the second year running. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I need to look at the list. I know there's a lot of, uh, I think, I feel like there are other people that, that we know that need to be congratulated as well. So maybe we can give it its full due next time uh, that they just came out i think yesterday so I actually really... i think they posted it a couple weeks ago really and it's just now getting publicized the date was february 19th on the site so huh. there's not been a lot of hype about it i wouldn't have known about it had derek not posted it i know that there's very old school on their approach but they need to get the word out a little bit better on social media and 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 i know make it a little bit easier to vote that's just my two cents so I, you have to go through a little bit of extra effort to to vote because you have got to basically compile an email and definitely worth your time to check a look at the list at least and get some ideas of what you might have missed in the last year. I don't have anything else except to remind people to give us a call. 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. And if you have a moment, rate us on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate it. That keeps us coming back to do more great episodes. Like, what are we doing next time, Richard? Well, I'm going to interject real quick and say that I know you've had some problems putting links oh, to yes. your WordPress site. So your website is classichorrors.club. Uh, make sure you make note of that. Hopefully, we're going to get that worked out for Jeff. I can't do my Monster Movie Kid WordPress site either. I think it's a WordPress Facebook issue. 
I normally don't link to that site because everything goes on kccinephile.com, but classichorus.club, still up and running. Take, you know, hopefully Jeff can work out with that and Facebook responds to him. If you're listening, Facebook respond. Jeff yeah. needs to get his links out there. Yeah, and when I when I post, I, I, I can't even put a link, so I am not mentally challenged. When I spell out classic horse, D-O-T, you know, that dot club, that is because it won't even let me put a link in. So appreciate those that have gone the extra step to actually go to the blog and look rather than just click a link in Facebook. Yes, thank you for, rem- I did mean to point that out, so thank you. Next month, we're going to jump ahead. You know, we've been living in the past for the last couple of episodes, so why not we jump ahead just a little bit to the late 1970s. We're going to be covering the Omen Trilogy, something we wanted to revisit. We're going to be seeing The Omen from 1976, Damien Omen 2 from 1978, and Omen 3, The Final Conflict from 1981, correct, I believe? 81, I think? And I don't believe we're going to go with The Omen 4, The Awakening, and I don't want to talk about the remake. We're just going to stick with the original trilogy and call it good. That's on next month's show. Looking forward to that. We're going to leave you with a song by a group called Roach from their self-titled album, Roach, available on iTunes. It is called Conga. Until next time, take care. Take care, everyone. Bye.